0: From the era that brought you names like Chamberlain, Russell, and West.
1: The Chamberlain, he's got it. Jerry West made it from the other side of the mid-court strike.
0: To the glory days of Magic and Kareem. And Magic Johnson is on there celebrating. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar is on the brink of an NBA all-time record. From a time where last-second shots were expected. Here comes Kobe. From way outside. Got it! Oh, yes.
1: man! Gets it to LeBron. For three for the win. Yes! LeBron dear. And rings were handed out like candy. Have one. Here's
0: It's Duncan Dynasty with your host, Garrett Bouguet, and it starts
1: right now. Welcome to another episode of Duncan Dynasty alongside my co host and friend, Corbin Ford. I am Garrett Bouguet, and uh, obviously, We've had a couple of the last couple of weeks, we've done live episodes uh, with the, with me doing play-by-play. This week, we've got uh, me and Corbin breaking down the Eastern Conference semifinal matchups. But uh, Corbin, first off, we're recording this on a uh, late Friday night after the epic game six battle between the Clippers and the Mavericks with the Clippers Continuing the streak of the road team winning every game of this series th- thus far and uh, taking it to a game seven, which will be Sunday at 3.30. But man, oh man, what uh, what a game that was.
0: It really was. Down the stretch, tight. That I mean, that, that once you saw the halftime lead of three for Los Angeles, I was like, wow, this is very much in play. And I was not optimistic that the Mavericks would pull this one out. But I thought it was—it was definitely in—it was definitely a possibility, especially you know being that they weren't hitting the mouth hard by Los Angeles and really reeling you know toward halftime. It was very much a nip and tuck game, and you know with the Clippers' uh, crunch time on and off struggles coming to play, it, it seemed like it was a possibility. But Kawhi Leonard just took that, um, took it on his own and said, "No, it's not going to happen." Um, and really, just in a major way. Led the Clippers, not really from the brink, perhaps, but like they 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 sealed the deal, they closed it out.
1: Yeah, Kawhi absolutely phenomenal with with forty five and uh, really taking over in uh, at various stretches of the game, but especially down the stretch in the fourth. And it was it was fascinating to me how both teams, you know, this has been very much an offensive series, but in this game, the the defenses were able to to uh to make an impact in part Dallas's zone defense I think just having Boban and Porzingis and Doncic just having a bunch of size taking away the uh, interior shots for the Clippers all, much of the night uh you know made a made a difference but you know the the thought with Boban typically would be oh he's going to help you Significantly on the offensive end, going up against the Clippers' smalls, but he missed a bunch of kind of bunnies. He had that one possession where he tapped the ball about seven times and couldn't get it to go in the basket, <laughs> uh, and so that that was fascinating in its own right. That yeah, the zone was was pretty effective in this game and and made a difference and and gave the Mavs offense a chance but the Clippers defense stepped up you know Kawhi including the 45 point offensive explosion also made a made a, a big impact on the defensive end pressuring Doncic you know they would they would double Doncic a lot of times and often when he'd get the when he would pass it off they would then deny prevent him from getting it back and there were moments in this game possessions where Doncic as soon as he passed it and the Clippers denied him, he didn't seem like he had the energy to to cut back or really
0: fight to get the ball back. Yeah, we've kind of seen him tail off physically, you know, toward the stretch of the games. Um, and a lot of that being just because of the heavy load he's constantly carrying and the lack of, you know, primary offense creators for the Mavericks. I think Tim Hardaway Jr. had a great game, you know, in terms of finishing, especially early on. But, you know, nine times out of 10, that ball goes to Luca because he is the hub. Uh, There's not another guy, you know, Jalen Brunson in spots. Uh, Jalen Brunson actually, I think, is sneakily effective at doing this just in terms of playing, in terms of initiating offense, you know, off the secondary pass. Uh, But a lot of it, Luke is creating and they're finishing. So when you put that ball in the hands of, you know, a guy like a Josh Richardson who has been in that position, but it's not really his game at all as an offensive initiator. When you put that ball, you know, in Tim Hardaway Jr.'s hands or Dorian Finney Smith's hands, you're getting a lot more mistakes. You're getting a lot more errors because these guys are not used to self-creation. and especially when you have a Luka that's already won, you know, carried the Mavericks so far in the first half offensively. So he's tired. And two, you know, you're actively going out of your way to make sure that he doesn't receive the ball. Yeah, it's taxing. And those are precious seconds off the clock. By the time Luke gets the ball back, it's, you know, seven, six seconds off the clock. Now I manufacture something, usually a step back three, which while it can go in and does, you know, at least a series more often than not. Uh, and it is is a shot. It's a shot that the Clippers will live with compared to him slicing and dicing up, you know, their entire back end.
1: Yeah. Dallas did a couple of nice adjustments in terms of the double teams on the pick and roll. They started having Hardaway Jr. be the one setting the screen so that, you know, when they threw two on Luca, that that pick and pop was for, you know, their, their best shooter. Uh, and and that got him some good looks, but Hardaway Jr. had a couple of wide open corner threes in the left corner that he missed down the stretch. Uh, and, and yeah, Luca just didn't show that, that sort of aggressiveness. And, And yeah, there was, uh, you know, in in my mind, I thought there was a, there was a bit of hesitation at the end of game five, you know, even though Dallas won, they kind of just crawled their way to the finish line and Doncic was, was isolating. He took some, some fadeaways from the post and tried to bank them off the glass and they just rattled in and out. He missed a bunch down the stretch, but, you know, I thought they were still good shots. You know, they were playing him one-on-one and he was getting to his spots and just Mm -hmm. barely missing but it seems like those shots not falling sort of maybe got into Luca's head a little bit and, and took away some of that aggressiveness down the stretch.
0: I definitely agree. I mean, I, that shot always to me looks, it, it wasn't until I'm like, okay, you know what, this is his shot that I became more comfortable with it, but yeah, he definitely seemed to have lost confidence in that. And the problem is this, I mean, that's fair. If you have other guys that are, you know, other guys that are wrong right now. Okay. I don't feel comfortable taking the shot because Chris stops getting his, I don't feel comfortable taking the shot because you know, THJ is going off. But Like in this case, no, he didn't feel comfortable taking it. And he was like, honestly, the best option. And even if like a 35% shot is, you know, not a high quality shot, if it's the best shot Jack can get for that possession, I think that's kind of a gimme, you know? And I think that lack of confidence from him, not only it probably permeated the rest of the Mavericks because he is the guy who stirs the drink as, you know, as the primary guy for the Mavs. So yeah, it was kind of weird. I'm not sure if that was how much that was just like discouraged on his own play or how much that was the additional consequence of fatigue, you know, but if, for whatever reason, yeah, he did not seem apt to take the same shots. He had been pretty good with taking most of the series up to this point so far.
1: Yeah. And there were, there were a few moments as well, where he would get someone like Marcus Morris switched out onto him. And, and typically with Morris Hill, uh, he has sort of the, the speed quickness advantage and he would go and, and face up and drive, but he just went right back to the back down against Morris like it was a Patrick Beverly or a Luke Kennard or one of those smaller guys on the Clippers. So, yeah, that you could definitely tell that fatigue was was playing a bit of a factor. And obviously, Dallas asking him to do so much. But, yeah, Kawhi, absolutely sensational and the, the big thing about game five is Dallas was sort of able to take him out of the flow of the offense for the Clippers by just showing multiple guys, but this game, Kawhi did not let that deter him. He would pass it and, and try to get it right back after the defense tried to scramble back to their normal assignments and then attack. He would oftentimes even try to dribble around that uh, initial double team. So he was a lot more aggressive just getting to his spots, and also he was a benefactor of some good Clippers ball movement at times against the zone and and being a play finisher uh, in, in those circumstances.
0: Yeah, and that really helps, you know, not only reduce some fatigue, but kind of free him up for more shots on the flow, get his touch going, get him into a groove without him having to manufacture so much to begin with. So it was really a big boon for him. Um, in both counts on that end, because you know you are getting that rhythm, and you're not having to spend too much energy in the offensive end to do so, freeing you even more so to kind of keep that energy on the defensive assignment.
1: Yeah. So, who do you have, Corbin? I'm going to put you on the spot here. Who? Uh, oh
0: my gosh! <laughs> who are you
1: checking uh, on for for Sunday's game seven?
0: I am so torn. And there's a, a variety of factors here, Garrett. I'm so mad, first of all, for you throwing me under the bus like this. Don't <laughs> but, I mean, first off, you have to look at the Clippers. And and I don't necessarily believe there's a Clippers curse or anything like that. But let's just say the Clippers' extensive history of falling short in the biggest moments. Um, a game seven at home, this is just prime Clippers territory. This is just just total breeding ground for disappointment right here. And, you know, I root for chaos, so I'm kind of here for it. But that's one factor. The second is that I do think that that um, so far, you know, through six games, never been done before the road teams won each time. I mean, I guess, you know, looking at that statistically, it's the Mavericks turn, right? So that's another thing. But third of all, I just don't know. I haven't seen Lucas so far have two back-to-back bad games, you know, relative to the load he's carrying and the responsibility that he has. So. I can't believe I'm picking Luca over Kawhi and PG in terms of clutch time performances, but I mean Paul George, come on out playoff P. That need I say anymore? No. And also, Kawhi left a bad taste in my mouth from that Game Seven last year. Now, mind you, he may come with a different mindset, but you know, in this game, but all that did for me was basically show there is a chink in the armor and that the legend of just like you know robot machine Game Seven Kawhi Leonard is not necessarily just bulletproof. You know, it's 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 not infallible all that to say i am narrowly taking the mavericks which is actually against this is so off of my original prediction that if i'm wrong i really don't care because i had clippers in five going into the series i did not think luke would go off like he did i really didn't i in fact i think i was talking to yeah, i was bringing i was bringing out just a and i was basically saying that Having these two teams was like a remix of last year, except the Clippers are stronger and the Mavericks are weaker. And if the Mavericks won two games last season in the last season's matchup with Lucas supporting cast, getting one game and Luca by himself getting another, I figured, okay, take a game from the supporting cast. Lucas still gets his because get one game and goes off and the Clippers will give the next four. I did not see this happening. So basically I, I'm playing with house money and I'm going to say Mavericks narrowly.
1: Yeah, I, I picked Matt or I picked Clippers in six initially and yeah I did not I did not see this kind of amazing performance from from Luca coming and I think you're being a bit harsh saying it's two back-to-back poor games from him uh, game five he he was sensational just kind
0: of got cold down the stretch uh-huh. oh no I'm saying I haven't seen two back-to-back bad games oh got you got you yeah yeah so I'm I'm not banking on him getting one you know, the, the coming up game seven, not that game six was horrible, but obviously there was clear. Okay. Luca could have done more type thing. Um, and I don't see that happening in game seven.
1: Gotcha. Yeah. I I'm, I'm in generally in agreement with you. I, I thought, this, okay. I, I thought this game was there for the taking for the Mavs. You know, Boban had a bunch of easy shots inside that he just missed. Uh, You know, the the team in general did not shoot the three ball well, you know, albeit the Clippers also did not shoot it well from downtown. But, uh, you know, Luca again had kind of just a regular game for him here in game six. And, yeah, they'll get an opportunity to make some adjustments. And I, you know, as as great as Kawhi has been and I trust Kawhi, he has had, you know, the last year in game seven against the Nuggets was a pretty poor performance from him. I think I I slightly trust Luca just as an overall offensive contributor at this point over Kawhi as much as I love Kawhi. So yeah, I I'm going with Dallas as well. But I certainly think it's going to be a, a heck of a ball game and and I think both of those teams have a decent chance of competing to to make the Western Conference Finals, if not further.
0: Yeah, I mean it's got, the, the whole layout now of the. <laughs> Western Conference playoff picture is a mess. I mean, that's going to be something to dive into at some point. It's, it's totally different now.
1: Yeah, so let's talk about the other news of the day prior to getting into our uh, Eastern Conference semi-preview, and that is the firing of Terry Stotts. We don't have to break it down in in crazy detail, but I guess my first question for you, Corbin, is, uh, you know, are you surprised by this move, and are you, you know, supportive of it or kind of against the the decision?
0: I'm kind of, I mean, here's the thing. The writing was on the wall about it, you know, in terms of him being on the hot seat, what, pretty much all year. Um, In a short answer, no, I'm not surprised at all. I think that Terry Stotts, I don't know. It was one of those things where something had to be done and the easiest move to make in a time like this is to move the coach, you know? And Terry's had his fair share of mistakes. You could look at the non-challenge he didn't call, you know, in that game six for the Blazers on um, Yusef Nurkic, where he, in my opinion, he definitely did foul uh, Nikola Jokic on a three-point attempt, but it was enough that you could have took a challenge. He didn't take a challenge there, saved it to make a worse challenge, and then it just was was horribly wrong. Um, So you could have made the case on that and some other coaching errors, defensive principles, things like that, that you could definitely have blamed on um, Terry Stotts. At the same time, I feel like a lot of the issues for the Blazers go far beyond Terry. You could worry about the defense, injuries. There's a lot more there. You know, the, the stagnant offense of Damian Lillard when he's not, you know, handling the ball. I mean, there's other things you could look at as, I mean, I wouldn't blame Dame at all, you know, in this series, but I'm just saying over the years that you could also nitpick and try to rectify when you look at that team that don't just go on Terry Stotts. He had to be the fall guy for this. And while he does assume a good share of the responsibility, he isn't the culprit for everything that ails them.
1: Yeah, um, I, I got the sense that you know, if they were gonna lose in the first round again, I think this is the fourth time in the last five seasons they've lost in the first round, the other being the 2019 run where they made the conference finals. But uh, yeah, that, that if, if they lost again in the first round that he would be gone. And yeah, so I'm, I'm not surprised either. And frankly, I think it's the right the right decision despite the fact that yeah, he's been there a while. He's proven that he's not, you know, a terrible coach. He's probably mid middle tier as far as the coaches. Exactly. But given the talent, given that, you know, Damian Lillard, CJ, the the core guys on this team are in their prime now and are only going to get worse moving forward. um, You know, I, I understand that not being satisfied with, with this result and, You can blame Neil O'Shea as much as you want, but he did provide some defensive talent. He did get some defensive talent on this roster with the likes of of Covington and Jones Jr. and Hollis Jefferson, and obviously Nurkic is a solid defensive center. So for them to be 29th in the NBA with that defensive talent is just not good enough, and frankly – you know, when you are that bad, it's not even as much. I mean, certainly some of it is about personnel, but when you're, you know, one of the bottom three teams in the league on defense, it goes beyond just having bad personnel. It's poor coaching on that end. It's breakdown, consistent breakdowns. It's consistently like Stotts has done all season, playing mellow and canter together with the bench units, just completely focusing on offensive lineups and and not prioritizing the defense. And if you ask me, you know, they they finished 2nd in offense and 29th in defense this year, I would much rather see a team be 5th in offense and 20th on defense and kind of be a little bit more balanced when it comes to postseason basketball because if you're if you're as bad as they were defensively and and they continue to just give up enormous offensive ratings to a nuggets team that yes had the has the mvp and Jokic, has michael porter jr but they're playing guards that were not in the league as recently as a couple of months ago and uh don't slander
0: austin rivers
1: yeah certainly not an (laughs) offensive roster of healthy guys that you would say should just be consistently putting up offensive ratings in the 120s Uh, you know
0: i'm Oh, no. I'm with you up to a certain extent. I, I think you're right a lot, especially when it comes to the deployment of certain of certain lineups. Uh, like you said, can't turn mellow. It doesn't take a rock scientist or even a casual basketball fan to see that front court just bleeds points as soon as players walk on the floor. With that being said, i look at guys who've been there for a while. You know, I don't think it's Terry Stout's responsibility to teach Damian Little to be aware off-ball. I don't think it's, you know, Terry Stout's responsibility to kind of have a lot of these guys show more effort on the defensive end. It's not like I think, oh, they're they're trying. They're just woefully, you know, lost from a tactical perspective. No. it's, it's I don't see that at all. And I was looking at some of the defense in the last couple of games. I want to look back more in this series of more critical eye I think that yeah, you could look at a lot of them for maybe not putting them in the best position and maybe not being a quote unquote better motivator. Um, but aside from Damian, you know, shutting down Michael Porter for like that second half of a uh, game six, I I don't know how much of that I put on the on Tyree Stotts and separate from the players that he has on the floor. You know what I mean? I, I just. I feel like if you were going to say, okay, you know, the players did everything they could and it was the coach that kind of did them in. No, Terry Stotts definitely didn't put them up with an advantage. You know, he wasn't leading this team in war with like a clear head up, but I don't think he was like giving them a blueprint for failure. I think that, you know, some of it was roster construction, not having an adequate guy to back up Damian Lillard, seeing the CJ at least over the past two years, not that guy, whether due to injury or, you know, well, a uh, poorly timed shooting slump. I think there was more there than just on Stotts. And when it comes to defensive end, as much as I, get where you're coming from with it and agree, you know, to a certain extent, I I can't, the players are the ones on the floor. You know, that's what I mean. They're the ones enacting whatever scheme it is. And if you want to say that the drop scheme was too conservative, I'll agree with you on that for sure. But I I don't know, maybe I'm just being too much of a a coach's guy right now, but I I definitely have been critical of the Blazers' defense for a while. And that was, you know, irrespective of Terry Stotts' influence.
1: Yeah, it it is impossible for for people like us on the outside to truly know and truly be able to differentiate and, and give credit to like, okay yeah, how much is this on Terry Stotts versus how much is this just the players not executing? I will say, though, that when you talk about like breakdowns defensively, like a Damian Lillard just falling asleep off ball or Mm -hmm. not helping on a back screen, you know, basic stuff like that, that they consistently got wrong in during this season and during this series, you know, I do think part of a coach's job is to, you know, make your players aware of the mistakes they're making and have a culture where okay, we don't abide by these sorts of mistakes. If you make these mistakes, you're coming out of the game. You know, I think in in a lot of respects, it's interesting because Frank Vogel and the Lakers were also eliminated. But Vogel is kind of the the anti-Terry Stotts, where he has developed such a great um, a culture on the defensive end. And, uh, you know, his, his players, he, he gets all of his guys to play really hard. They execute the defensive scheme. Um, So I, so I do think there is something to a coach being able to, to institute that sort of things and get the players to consistently perform better. And to, you know, if they aren't, then you, you sit them, you, you make them aware what, what's expected of them. Um, So, yeah, it's, but yeah, it's, it's absolutely tough. And especially for a guy like Damian Lillard, where he's asked to do so much on the offensive end. Um, Can you then also expect him to be locked in every single defensive possession on, on the uh, other
0: side? Yeah, and that's true. I mean, and with Dame, I'm a lot more critical because you're right. I don't expect that at all ever, you know, like every single one, but like at least some at best, he's Okay, like I mean, I don't want to compare him to Curry exactly, but I can you can notice effort on one end, despite the heavy responsibility Curry carries on the other end. You know, and yes, he has you know Draymond Green covering up on the back line, but when you watch Curry, he gets in there, he tries. You know, you yeah. can watch a Curry defense possession, you watch a Damian defense possession, and you can definitely see a difference. And that's what I'm saying. And I'm I mean, yes, Damian Lillard had a heavy load, but I'm not gonna put that up against Curry's load this season. And say they're the same, you know what I mean? And that's just an example for this one very small sample side of the year. But in general, I think that if you want to build up your game as Damon Lillard, it has to be up at least set the example, at least for a little bit. I don't think you can. Again, I noticed for the first time in playing decent defense when Michael Porter Jr. just disappeared, you know, on yeah. the offensive end in game six. And for the most part, uh, you know, you're already hiding Damon, the weakest offensive player that he can guard anyway, size wise. So I I just I'm not letting him off the hook for that.
1: Well, and I guess the 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 other counter to your statement too is it's like how much is does Terry Stotts deserve credit for their very heavy isolation offense where they're relying on the skills of Damian Lillard and C.J. McCollum and Norm sure. Powell and shooting to just create all of their offense. You know their their offense is not sophisticated. It is not, uh, you know, there, there aren't a lot of great sets being drawn up. It's a lot of just hand the ball to your your creators and let them go to work. So, yeah, on one end, yeah, you wonder, okay, how much is this just the guy, the players not getting it done on the defensive end versus the coaching? And then on the offensive end, it's the same thing. Do, does Stotts deserve all of this credit for the Blazers being second in
0: offense, or is that largely because they've got Dame Lillard? That's a good question. And honestly, I have to agree with you on that, because when you look at Dame, I would never call him a selfish player. He takes a lot of the shots because he's the best option, you know, but I don't feel like he could not play an offense where, you know, you less more ball movement, have him play off ball as I wish he would do more. I mean, you've seen the great thinking ba- basketball videos about, you know, how he just kind of fall asleep off ball. And a lot of that may be due to tendencies and, you know, having a large share of your right being under a coach's role where this is what you do. You know, and when you don't have the ball, somebody else's turn. But I have to throw, I'm going to throw you a surprise. So I saw this uh, pop on my Twitter about, you know, five minutes ago. Apparently, you know, Damian Lillard told Yahoo Sports that he has an idea of who he wants to be the next coach of the Blazers. Hmm. What do you think about Jason Kidd? Because that is who Damian Lillard said he wants. To Chris Haynes, by the way.
1: I think that's a terrible <laughs> um you know, if their issue, the team's main issue that they've got to improve moving forward. Yes, there are there are some minor things offensively, especially in a playoff environment, that they can get better. You know, by having more sophisticated offensive sets, getting Lillard off the ball more consistently. Um, you know, those sorts of things, kind of you know, like what Steve Kerr has has done with with Steph and Clay in Golden State, but the major upgrade that they could get from a head coach to make them a more viable basketball team is improving that defense and Jason Kidd his last time as a head coach he could not get a Bucks team with Giannis Antetokounmpo to play defense I mean, no no so I, I I have no idea what the what the excitement that's... is over Jason Kidd and why he happens to be like Every time there's a there's a a coaching search that he's at the top of every team's list. Why?
0: What is he it's done Jason to deserve did. it? No, I, I am I am floored by that. Um, and I don't. I'm, I'm with you. I, I, it, it obviously shows you what's on Dame's mind, and it's not defense. Not play. <laughs> I'm shocked. It's going to be interesting. Uh, the fact that uh, again, this just goes that sometimes players, especially star players, aren't the greatest evaluators of talent you know, uh, aside from maybe LeBron is GM and even that has had his shortcomings as we see it from every team he leaves, you know, um, sometimes, you know, players taking on the hat of executives. um, Yeah, nah. Yeah, I've heard,
1: I've heard Mike D'Antoni's name rumored as well. He's obviously, you know, an assistant this year. Uh, I I don't think that's a bad, that would be a bad choice. You know, he, D'Antoni has shown that he, you know, obviously is, is better as an offensive mind, but he's gotten teams in the past, especially those rockets teams to defend maybe even better than you would expect. So I think Dan, Tony would be a, would be an interesting option, but he's also again, not uh, you know, if, if it were me, I would say, let's get a guy that we know, like, for instance, uh, you know, a, a Tom Thibodeau type where you know, okay, this guy is going to improve our team's defense, and then we can rely on our, uh, you know, even Nate, Nate McMillan with Atlanta, what he has done, where you've got Trey Young, you've got Bogdan Bogdanovich, you've got the offensive talent, you don't need some great X's and O's guru to to be good on that side, but yes, mm-hmm. get a coach that can really help you get towards league average on the defensive side.
0: I just yeah, you're right. I again, yeah, you gotta be telling this to Dame. No, I'm playing. But no, I'm with you. And you know, some of the institute those values, I don't even know. I'm not gonna pretend like I am a coach guy. Every time these coach hires come up, I see the same five or six names at this point. I wouldn't mind Jeff Van Gundy getting back in. Like, you know, I I'm willing to to say that um I'm not exactly certain of who I would want to fit philosophy-wise, I'm definitely with you. That's kind of what you need if you want to go to the next level of your Portland. But as far as like what name, um is ideal for that. I, I really don't know. I mean, I didn't see Jason Kidd being, you know, the popular choice, but I, you saw him float about, you saw uh, what Um, I know there was Becky, him to the Celtics. That's not so I know my friend was talking about that with Portland. There's a few names been kind of tossed around what Chauncey or is that Celtics too? the same five, six guys kind of keep being tossed around. So at this point, I don't know, but yeah, you're right. Someone that could, you know, reinstill some defensive values, some defensive principles, hopefully put in a, a more, just a more evolved offense, you know. It's not predictable down this down the stretch of the postseason, and also not something that takes major wear on not only Damian Lillard's production, but the lack of development of players around him. You know, uh, I don't know if we're going to see that, but that's just that was a fun aside. But I'm I'm shocked still. I'm sorry.
1: Yeah it uh, it'll be interesting to see what what happens, and and also you know whether Neil O'Shea is going to be there for the long term. You know they they've obviously made a, a quick decision getting rid of stots and and more heads could, could roll here coming soon. Mm -hmm. But uh, let's, let's move on to uh, the, the main body of this episode, which is the Eastern conference semifinal preview Corbin and I are going to break down both of the, the second round series in the East. And uh, if, if you guys got to listen to either of my Eastern or Western conference first round previews, you'll know that uh, each of us are going to take, over and, and kind of act as the, the coach of a particular team. So for this this first series we're going to discuss, we're going to talk about the, the number one seed Philadelphia 76ers and the five seed Atlanta Hawks. I'm going to be acting as Doc Rivers and the Philadelphia 76ers. Corbin will be Nate McMillan and the Atlanta Hawks. The Sixers... The number one seed at 49 and 23, 13th in offense, third in defense, seventh in net rating at plus 5.4. They defeated the Washington Wizards in five games in the first round. The Atlanta Hawks at 41 and 31, ninth in offense, 17th in defense, 12th in net rating at positive 2.3, and they dispatched the New York Knicks in five games as well. So, Corbin, I guess the first thing, you know, when when we're looking at this series is obviously the, the recent news of uh, Joel Embiid. And he obviously missed that game five of that first round series. And it was revealed that he has a small uh, emphasis on small lateral meniscus tear in his right knee. And really, in my mind, you know, a lot of this series boils down to and I know this isn't, you know expert analysis here i love it no it a great. lot of this boils down to is the best player on the floor going to be available and is he going to be in top form
0: yeah i think that's kind of a big one um especially in a, in a series around this where it, is it weird to to call and not only the the biggest piece in in this matchup but also the x factor <laughs> no not at all <laughs> like that's kind of where we're at here with this and i never thought i'd be there um considering, you know, what the 76 look like leading up to this, but yeah, he, he figures to factor big in this matchup. And while he's out, it's going to be very interesting to um, see how, uh, how these two teams kind of work them their way through the series.
1: Yeah. And the whole idea of a meniscus tear and it being something that he can return from is, is so fascinating to me because it's something that I actually experienced when I was, uh, you know, playing. This was right before I went to college. I uh, I tore my meniscus and the doctor basically told me, you know, we, we should rehab it and, and see if you can strengthen it up and go from there. And I eventually tore my ACL in that same knee. Aye, aye, aye. So it's definitely a concern, uh, you know, a potential worse injury is definitely possible here. Now, you know I, I don't know to the extent of how big of a tear mine was at the time and and yes just you know they, they have they have focused in on that it's a small tear uh but but yeah it's uh as far as Embiid's you know future is concerned it's uh it this is uh this is a big decision for him and the franchise
0: mm-hmm. and even when he comes back it's not like Embiid's coming back to be you know a role player just focused on rebounding no they need his 27 to 30 points a game so you know who with the return of Embiid comes the return of his workload and again you're putting a lot of that on a guy who has an injury that is very very uh you know synonymous for leading to a bigger injury
1: yeah so moving past moving past that I mean, the, uh, just looking at the, the regular season matchups between these two teams, unfortunately, there wasn't a lot to take from them. The first matchup, Atlanta won 112-94 on January 11th, but both teams missing key guys. The Sixers didn't have Ben Simmons or Seth Curry, and the Hawks did not have uh, Bogdanovich or uh, Gallinari. And then uh, the second matchup on April 28th, Philadelphia won 127-83, but the Hawks didn't have Trey Young, DeAndre Hunter, or Bogdan Bogdanovich. In that wow. matchup. And then on April 30th, the, the, the just two days later, the Sixers won 126-104. Trey Young did come back for that one, but they still didn't have Bogdanovich or Hunter. So this will be the first time, well, assuming Embiid is out there and playing, that we'll get to see both of these teams go at it full strength, but You know, I've heard a lot of people saying even prior to the Embiid news that this was just going to be kind of a walkover for the Sixers and it would be an absolute disaster if they lost to the Hawks. And I'm sitting here going, the the Hawks were, you know, positive 2.3 net rating. They were not healthy all season long. They were constantly missing players. They're finally healthy now. They looked really good against, I, I understand, a limited New York Knicks team. But this whole, this whole narrative that, oh, Philadelphia should, should just coast in this series and the conference finals is a guarantee, I don't really understand that.
0: I'm, I'm with you in a major way here. Because, uh, okay, all things being cool, if both teams are full strength, I would definitely give the Sixers a hearty advantage. Um, just because, yes, as I'm about to get you, the Hawks have been absolutely rolling. However, you know, Joel Embiid is, is tough to handle. Um, you know, Clint Capella did great shutting down the Knicks, and Matt, you know, all series. But Joel Embiid is a, it's just a different stratosphere entirely. You know, you have that when he's in fine form. You know, you have guys going off like Seth Curry, you know, like Danny Green, Ben Simmons all around play. And Tobias Harris being able to be a kind of that secondary guy, third kind of guy, which uh, he's much better suited for than the main option. Uh, with him being out, the the talk still going that way is, is puzzling. Because forget how well Atlanta's been playing, but look at the roles that you're forcing Philadelphia. Now everyone kind of slides up one position. You know what I mean? If if Tobias Harris was your two guy, you know, playing off of MB, now he's kind of your focal point. Ben Simmons, maybe that third guy do it all. Now he's your second player. You know, Seth Curry has to assume a a more responsibility, which I'm going to find very interesting. In fact, Seth Curry is kind of the guy um, if I'm Atlanta, I'm going for, uh, we'll talk about it in a minute, but he's someone who has to assume more responsibility. Danny Green, you know, you're looking at bench a lot more, many of which, you know, you got Tyrese Max, you got, you know, Dwight Howard, Maltese Seibel off the bench, but a lot of those guys aren't, let's just say, uh, as well-equipped for the roles that they're going to have to assume now. You know, it, it's it's just, it's a tectonic, like, shift in terms of responsibilities now for a Sixers team against a Hawks team that everyone's in full stride right now. I mean, Trey young. We saw the series he's had, but has been cooking. The three has been falling for Atlanta. Capella was a beast and has been this playoff series so far. John Collins had his moments. DeAndre hunters had his moments. There's a lot of guys right now and they're coming in right now with, uh, you know, a dangerous team, a team that has really no expectation. They're coming out and playing, you know, they're just coming out and playing.
1: Yeah. in in that, uh, in that first round Eastern conference preview podcast that I did prior to to the postseason, I, you know, did all of the rounds as well. And obviously this was before the Embiid news and I picked Philadelphia and six in this series. Um, and and we'll obviously get to our predictions for the series, knowing what we know now at the end. But uh, I, I think Atlanta has a serious shot in, in this matchup. And I think a big part of it is that Philadelphia is not just this juggernaut offensively. Now, they did look like that at times against a terrible Washington defense. Hey, hey, no, Uh, I'm playing. They were horrible. But but the Sixers were 13th in the NBA in offense, and a lot of that is a bead uh, getting them to that level. And if he's limited and or out, I, I have serious reservations about their ability to score the basketball. This Hawks defense, you know, yes, they've got, They've got Trey Young, who is, of course, a weak link, but their front line is big. They're strong. They're physical. They're athletic. Uh, you know, they've got some they've got some defenders. And and Capella is one of those guys that I would say, you know, if, if if you're telling me name five guys that in the NBA that you would want to have to deal with Embiid, Capella might be one of those five.
0: Almost definitely. And it's not even just that, you know, you have the bodies, you know. John Collins is still, he's not maybe big enough frame-wise, but at least enough to stop up minutes. I would say at least comparable to what the Wizards had to try out to defend or attempt to defend Embiid, you know, in their previous series. You have Onyeka Okungwu, you know, the rook, still able to at least throw himself up, stop up some minutes. So you have guys, a plethora of guys who can, you know, steal possessions. You know, I would not want to put um, uh, certain guys uh, that the Hawks have on Embiid uh, and, and what I mean by that is like, let's say, I mean, DeAndre Hunter, size-wise for a moment maybe, but that's still not somebody that you want to have. there. The Hawks just have big bodies. And that means you could throw different guys at Embiid. You could throw different looks. And like you said, you have a guy in Capella that can sop up uh, the majority of that time. I mean, heck, you could put Danilo Gallinari in that area. I would not do that just at all. I'm just saying in terms of guys size-wise that can kind of take a moment, you know, Give a different look, that sort of thing. These guys aren't defenders, but it's like the old Warriors mantra of strength in numbers.
1: Yeah, uh, I, I like the the defensive matchups for the Hawks in this series quite a bit. I love the, the idea that they can put Collins on Ben Simmons and allow Collins to be a secondary rim protector. Obviously, Simmons can't stretch you out and, and force you out on the perimeter very much. And then also DeAndre Hunter as the defender against Tobias Harris, who especially when Embiid is off the floor or not producing, they rely a lot on Harris's offensive game. And and Hunter is one of the best, you know, emerging wing defenders in the league. Mm -hmm. And they also have a guy that they can hide Trey Young on and Danny Green, who is similar to Reggie Bullock for the Knicks, a guy that is mostly just a spot up shooter.
0: Yeah, you're right. It, it's 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 a even parallel there, um, and speaking of that, do you want to kind of you want to kind of go into my my I have a good point on on or I have a point not a good point but I have a matchup I want to kind of oh I'm sure
1: him. I'm sure it's a great point if it's coming from you, Corbin.
0: Oh look at it! I'm telling you, man, your, your kindness is off the table. All right, <laughs> off the stratosphere, man. I'm I'm so flattered. And I can't even remember the point. Okay, no, here it is. <laughs> if I'm the Hawks, you know, I think the one guy you're targeting that you just want to play out the floor. Is Seth Curry. You know, uh, the Wizards just made it so easy for Seth because in the five games that they played, they had a, a, a really small lineup and that was by necessity for the Wizards because they had no wings. So, you know, you're starting, you know, Bradley Beal, Russell Westbrook and Raul Neto, you know, and then Hachimura and, and pick a big Robin Lopez, you know, Dan, Daniel Gafford, whatever the case may be, just because you don't have a really, you know, a three at all. So they were kind of just, you know, sliding Beal up that spot and playing like that. But guess what? Seth Curry just could easily hide on on Neto and 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 be okay on one end, you know, just dead even if not superior on the defensive end there while just lighting up the Wizards like he did all season long against them, but that's a totally different story. Now, you bring him up against the Hawks, you have something totally different because uh, looking this up, uh, and this is actually uh, from a preview I was doing, well, reading on Forbes and getting up for this, I didn't realize that Curry had locked the most time against Tony Snell, which, I mean, that's cool and all, Um, even though Tony Snell is also much bigger than Curry, but Tony Snell doesn't do anything off the dribble. You know, he's a catch and shoot guy. That's it. You know, minimal usage. It's easy cover considering, but now that you have Deandre Hunter in the lineup, uh, totally different. You know, the guy is six inches, almost 50 pounds on him. The guy's a lot more aggressive offensively. And wherever you put Curry, you know, they're going to cook him because you put on Trey Young. That's a disaster. Bogdan Bogdanovich. I, 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 I wouldn't do that either. You know, and if you're going to do it that way, if you don't have a matchup that Curry can fill in the starting lineup, he has to come off the bench. That's fine, you know, for Curry, but that makes the starting lineup for the Seventy Six is much less potent because then what do you match up with multi style What are you putting up there to kind of eat away at some of your offense because the guys coming off the bench aren't uh, necessarily you know offensive just carriers there. And if you're bringing in a Tyrese Maxey or something, you're opening up the same issues that you had with Curry on the floor.
1: Yeah, I'm so glad you brought this up, and it, and it was a great point. And <laughs> the, the, uh, yeah, because as I said, the the Hawks have somebody that Trey Young can can hide on in that starting lineup, and Danny Green.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah,
1: the the uh, the Sixers have nobody that they can hide Seth Curry on, because as you said, DeAndre Hunter is is an emerging offensive piece that's got a, a bunch of size on him, and then you know also Bogdanovich and Young, excellent off the you know pick and roll, and and they they want to avoid Curry being in those matchups as well. So yeah, that is that is a big concern, and, and you're right that you know with Curry, if if they decide to to put him on off the bench or take him out early and then bring him with, with the second units, yes, then there's some some guys with like a Tony Snell that they can throw him on with the with the Hawks second unit. But uh, even someone like Herder, I'm not sure. I would love to have Seth Curry on. Herder can make a play in the pick and roll. Yeah,
0: Lou um, will, will not- off the bench. Match yeah. of nightmare. Um, so,
1: so I, my, my, uh, my thought to that as as Philly is, yeah, maybe, especially if Embiid is out or limited, mm-hmm. maybe you do bring Curry off the bench so that yes, he can spruce up those second units, and then you either start the likes of George Hill or even Corkmaz. You know, Corkmaz is not a, a great athlete by any stretch, but he executes the seam, the scheme, and he also has bigger size if they're going to end up putting him on Hunter.
0: I agree with you there. I guess my one question before George Hill, uh, as someone who's kind of like that uh, homogenous kind of ball handler, offense mover for that second unit, you know, you bring him to the front court. Now you kind of have a, a doubling of that with him and Simmons. They're going to stagger it some. So you're going to have a guy to get the sixes in their offense because you have a, a, a pretty surprising kind of lack of playmaking outside of that.
1: Yeah. Um, they've got shake Milton too, who at least can, I, I think, can run a pick and roll offense, but um, you know that, yeah, so yeah, he would be your backup point guard if you started Hill and Simmons both in, in the backcourt, but mm. yeah, it, there's some, there's some interesting tough sort of choices that doc's going to have to make and, and, and maybe it's all for not, maybe Deandre Hunter doesn't show the aggressiveness offensively that we saw uh, at various times this season and and they can hide him or maybe bogdanovich is cold and and curry does a decent job and now we we should state that in no way should we be uh comparing curry and young as defenders curry is no. Curry is much better but they are both the the weakest links in the start in their team's respective starting fives
0: oh 100 percent exactly and you know in the playoffs that's ex- that's just literally the name of the game you know, you go for those weak links again and again. And fortunately, you know, the Hawks can do a better job of hiding Trey Young. They did a good job on that last series, hiding him on Reggie Bullock for the majority of the time. You know, uh, you know, kind of getting him out of the action with Philadelphia right now. You don't have a lot of guys dynamic off the ball that are going to do that. And the one guy that I guess you would target off a of switch would be a guy like Tobias Harris. But. I don't know if that's really in in Harris's DNA to constantly go at it that way. He's not that type of offensive uh, attacker to kind of go relentlessly again and again and again, you know, off the switch to kind of go at Trey Young like that. And he's probably one of your few guys, if you're Philadelphia, that's capable of consistently generating offense off the dribble.
1: Yeah. And that's, that's the other issue with Philly like trying to force uh, a switch of young is that they don't have a bunch of great off the dribble three point guys. So. Say, for instance, Trey Young is guarding Danny Green and they want to switch Young and have him guard Ben Simmons or Tobias Harris so they can take advantage of that. You know what happens? So Danny Green goes to set the screen against who Uh, against uh, Ben Simmons or Harris. I think you go under that and force those guys to beat you with off the dribble threes and and keep Young on his assignment. So, yeah, there's uh, there's there, there's that issue as well. You know, it's one thing if, you know, for instance, in w- what we were talking about with the, the Mavs Clippers, where if they're putting two on the ball with Luca, they can set the screen with with Tim Hardaway Jr. And get him that sort of a shot and, and sort of force a lose lose situation. Either you switch and, and give us the, the matchup we want or Tim Hardaway Jr. is getting a wide open three. the the Sixers offense and their personnel are limited to us to a certain extent. And and it's not as simple of an equation for them.
0: No, that that definitely. Yeah, that's true. And you're right. It's a pick your poison thing that kind of presents you with suboptimal options either way.
1: Yeah. So speaking of the, the, the defensive side of the ball for the Sixers, a couple of things that that concern me is that the Hawks, especially with the new, this new starting lineup and also what McMillan sort of figured out, Halfway through that that Knicks series is that he's constantly having two pick and roll ball handlers on the court at all times. Uh, he's he's usually starts obviously with with Young and Bogdanovich, and then on the second units you've got Herder, uh, you've got uh, Lou Williams, and they they've even started to to stagger Young and uh, and Bogdanovich and have Bogdanovich on those second units as well. So, for Philadelphia, who typically has one ace perimeter defender on the court at all times with Simmons or Thibel, yes, you can throw one of those guys on a Young or a Bogdanovich or a Williams, but, you know, you can't throw two. And if you are putting out both Thibel and Simmons, how much is that killing you on
0: the offensive end? That is true. I mean, you're right. It's taxing on one end or the other. I feel like, I don't know, for Atlanta, and maybe – I'm overly optimistic with them with the amount of the offensive and defensively, this Atlanta team is is not super great. I think they've been uh, blessed to have handled, you know, the likes of a offensive, def- offensively deficient New York Knicks team. You know, they really lacked a consistent point guard down the stretch, especially once, you know, Derek Rose had to play, you know, almost 40 minutes a game.
1: And yeah, now kind I, of lucking- I should Yeah. I should state that despite me uh, mentioning that Philadelphia was 13th in offense, the Knicks were 24th, so this is a step up in terms of an offensive team, even with a limited Embiid, I believe. The Sixers are better, so it is going to be more of a challenge for, for the Hawks' defense, for sure.
0: Yeah, and that's why I'm torn, because right now I'm very high on the offensive creation just bursting up the seams for Atlanta, and especially its offense that – New York's defense was south, you know, and offense just – I mean, Atlanta's offense just lift them up. A plethora of guys can tackle the dribble, you know, shot creation come from different positions, off the bench, starting lineup. You know, like you said, you could mix and match have multiple offensive initiators bringing the ball, you know, and initiating offense off the bench or, or starting alongside Trey Young as spot up shooters. I like that, but defensively, I, I think that's going to be the key for Atlanta more so than their offense, which I was concerned about in the first round as to whether that would travel. I've seen this, I'm convinced now that it can, but now I'm wondering can you take advantage of Philadelphia enough to, you know, steal a, steal, maybe one more game than you would thought, than, than was expected? Um against an offense that while better than New York is still, you know, in my opinion, anemic for a championship contender. Um, just because I, I am not, again, high on the creation abilities of some of these guys. You know, they have a very good formula that really flows from Joel Embiid. You know, he's kind of the straw stirs the drink. Now, Ben Simmons can definitely turn it on, but he also has moments of passivity that I'm uh, not entirely convinced he can just dial in for an extended stretch. At least yeah. the playoff series.
1: Yeah, it's... Uh... It's really it's really fascinating. I think this is going to be a, a, a truly a, a, a really interesting series from an X's and O's standpoint, you know, from from Philadelphia's perspective, dealing with, as you mentioned, a Hawks offense that really was able to torch the, the Knicks defense and and really ha- put up some some productive moments and and for for extended stretches in that series. I would I would start with you know Simmons is my defensive guy right I'm putting him on Trey Young and trying to uh, you know cut off the head of the snake as you will mm-hmm. and the the challenge again with that is that they've also got Bogdanovich and and that's what I would assume would happen is if you put Simmons on Young that they will start to um, you know, to really go- have Bogdanovich be the main initiator mm-hmm. and allow Trey Young to play off the ball, off ball screens, and, and and catch it right, and 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 get the ball against a warped defense. Then, uh, so, but but yeah, I, I'm definitely trying to slow down Trey Young as much as possible. And yeah, if Simmons goes out, I think Thibault is is really good at those, you know, um, chase down those behind. Uh, When he's behind the ball handler, he can contest and get blocks. And uh, that's going to be a fascinating thing, too, is like who wins those duels of Trey Young with his foul drawing where he'll have the guy on his back and jump straight up and and, uh, create that contact for free throws, keep him on the back, get floaters. How good, you know, the the Sixers, Wings and Simmons and Thibel and even George Hill and Milton. They've got such long arms. They're so good at getting over the screens and contesting from behind that's going to be an, an, an interesting battle in this series.
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, you got the Chris Paul special, you know, get ahead of, of the big, you know, or the guard, stop on a dime, like you said, just get run over, get, get a, you know, especially in the bonus against, yeah, the lock and trail champ in Thibault who, you know, doesn't uh, leave on the play, will fight over the screen, will still make a contest and make things difficult. And against the Knicks, you saw time and again when Trey Young got past the initial defender, you know, off the pick, he had a good pocket of air to let go of his floater or, or pull up for a mid-range jump shot. And when you have a guy who is still hot on your heels, does that rush you a little bit? Now, it might be a little easier because you're going to play right now with the absence of Embiid, maybe what, Dwight Howard, 20 minutes a game? You know, something like that, Ramp up 25. You know, you're going to have at least a shot blocker presence uh, for some of it. In a way that, you know, you had to deal with uh, kind of hampered Nerlens Noel and no Mitchell Robinson last series if you were Trey Young. But in this one, I think he at least take advantage of some of it while Embiid's out. And I think it does turn into a different situation when Embiid's still in play. Because although you still have a big, like I said, Dwight Howard, who can at least kind of replicate to a lesser extent some of what Joel Embiid offers, at least from a, a gravity, you know, lob threat um, defensive standpoint, he's not going to be on the floor for Embiid level minutes.
1: Yeah. I mean, that. that's where it goes back to, you know, as a, as a defense for Philadelphia, we, we saw Trey young, especially against the drop system against the Knicks. He's so good at that floater. He's so good at getting into the paint, keeping the guy on his back, drawing those cheap fouls. And then, you know, if you collapse from the perimeter, he's, he's going to make the right pass and, and get an open a good shooter an open look. So that drop system is challenging. And yes, if Philly is, you know, has no Embiid, and it's just Dwight Howard. He really can't do anything other than the drop system.
0: Mm-hmm. So, yeah, he's married to that. <laughs>
1: yeah, so that's that's a that's an issue, and and that's where Embiid's health is is so important because he's his mobility and everything is going to be tested in this series by Trey Young, and you know I think the best options of dealing with Young is is obviously mixing things up, showing him different looks, at times hard hedging and maybe even trapping. At other times, just showing high. And Embiid has the mobility and athleticism to show high. And if Young is able to get an initial with a quick step, get around him, Embiid can chase him down and block it. So his defensive skills is uniquely qualified to deal with Young. But again, we're we're not sure what kind of Embiid we're going to get. And you know, if this is a 70, 75% version of Embiid, I think those those highlight reel type of plays are, are going to be, you know, in short supply.
0: I mean, yeah, it, it's, it's, I'm tearing myself up, Garrett, into like this matchup chess here between these two. Because, all right, looking at right now, uh, I guess I got, I got to change gears here, throw you a different question. Yeah. Philadelphia without Embiid, what percent do you think they are in this matchup against Atlanta? 80, 85, where are you looking at them? Are you higher on this? Are you, I mean, I think you're higher on the 76 Wild Embiid than I am. But I, I, I'm i curious as to the degree. Because for me, I think the the Sixers kind of turning into a, a different team in the sense that they shift to Ben Simmons, obviously like they did during parts of the regular season when they kept afloat the while Embiid was out with that injury. However, in a playoff series where you can kind of focus on a little bit more, I do think it's a little bit different. And I don't know if Atlanta's the team to kind of exploit uh, ben Simmons enough that way, but come on, the book, I mean, the book's on him already, you know?
1: Yeah. I mean, uh, I, uh, I, I'm not sure what I said to to give you the impression that I'm higher on the Sixers minus Embiid than you are, but maybe if, I was too negative. My mistake. <laughs> if, uh, if, if you were to tell me right now and doesn't play at all in this series, I would pick Atlanta in five. Whoa.
0: <laughs> Whoa. Okay. Garrett. <laughs> I love it when the Garrett comes with the hot takes. Oh my gosh, y'all. Yeah, you should have seen okay. You said five. All right, cool, cool. If he hasn't played all of this series, you know, I can wow. Gary, I love when you come with the hot takes, man. It's, it's straight fire. I'm in Arizona right now. It's 106 and it's 10 o'clock right now. And that's <laughs> the heat of that take right there. Thank you for that, sir. Thank you for that.
1: Um <laughs> I just, I don't, I don't see how they're, they're creating enough offense. I, I I get that the, the, the Hawks defense isn't anything special, but since McMillan's been there when they've got Capella and Hunter, both playing significant minutes, I think they're at a, they're an average to slightly above average defense and the Sixers offense, as I mentioned, 13th in the NBA, despite when Embiid played, he put up an MVP caliber offensive season. He was, Phenomenal! This is a legitimately below average to almost bad Sixers offense without Embiid. So yes. that that's where I'm coming from. Is this the and and the Hawks' the offense is legit? We saw it in the regular season; they were top ten in the league despite having tons of injuries all year long. And you know, we saw it in that first round series. The Knicks' defense—they they've got quality defenders. Uh, You know, I would say individually the Sixers have better defensive talent, but as far as a scheme and a system and, and, and a team that plays hard, it doesn't get much better than what the Knicks offer and the Hawks tore it apart.
0: It, yeah, it was almost it was it was almost demoralizing seeing how you know vaunted that Knicks defense was. And I was a firm believer of it. And yeah, just fundamentally taken apart, just due to the plethora of shot creators and shot makers that the Hawks had. And I guess this was almost an idealized version of what you know, Travis Schlenk and, and the team were put together during the offseason when I w- thought it was kind of a rush. I didn't think the Hawks were ready. for a lot of guys who, yeah, could, you know, in, in theory supplement Trey Young and allow him to be the, the cornerstone while also, you know, making enough plays off of the ball for him and not having him just have this massive um, Luka-type level of offensive responsibility, the team just goes kaput. At the same time, watching that come, you know, just blossom in its true form – Yeah, that was crazy. And like you said, the the 76ers are better than the Knicks defensively, but, I mean, the Knicks were a darn good team. They literally made their stake into the playoffs off the defense. And, like, Atlanta averaged like 100 and change on them. Easy. Yeah,
1: and the the other issue in this series for Philadelphia is, again, the lack of, uh, you know, Derrick Rose was – you know, just had such a great matchup in that series. And he's a, he's a downhill driver. He's quick. He's athletic. Uh, the, the Sixers, you know, who do they have in the guard spots that really scare you from a scoring perspective perspective? Obviously Curry can light you up from the perimeter, but mm-hmm. it's a matter of just showing up on him and, and, and contesting those shots. Yeah. But uh, the Hawks' defense, with with Young and Bogdanovich and Herter in the backcourt, that's really their weakness defensively. And the Sixers don't have a lot there in the guard at the guard positions to to really take advantage.
0: No, they don't. And you're right; that's going to be the weakest thing. You're putting a lot of offensive responsibility on who I think is actually the additional X factor aside from Joel Embiid. Joel Embiid obviously looms over this whole series. Of course, he would, but it has to fall on Tobias Harris to kind of pick up that slack because. I, I don't have a lot of faith in Ben Simmons outside of giving what he's going to give you, which is, you know, some offensive, you know, a four race to the basket. You're going to get rebounding. You're going to get some assist from him. I'm not trying to put him in some, some bit player, but I don't expect him to rise to the occasion and consistently come forward with like averaging 25 over the series. I don't see that. So you're looking at the only guy who can, you know, make a long range shot, pull up for a mid range, put the ball on the floor, get to the basket. And does he do it aggressively enough? to be a number one option. No. Can he uh, be a reasonable facsimile of that for a series? I, I even that, I don't know, but that's yeah. why he's the X factor for me because I mean, to, Tobias Harris is the name of Timmy, man.
1: Yeah. And the, as as I mentioned at the outset, I love the matchup of putting Hunter on him, but then they, the Hawks even have decent options off the bench to, to guard Harris in, mm-hmm. in Tony Snell and Solomon Hill. You know, they've got some quality defensive wings on this roster that I think can do a reasonable job. And yeah, I, to be honest, yeah, if, if MB is straight up not playing and the Sixers want to not only win the series, but even be competitive, I think you're talking Simmons and Harris having to combine for
0: what, 50 points a game, Mm -hmm. something in that range. Wow you know, it's funny breaking it down with you. Yeah. That's a very real possibility because you're going to get a few sand, you know, spot up threes from Danny green. He there's no offensive creation off the bounce for him at all. You know what I mean? And, and and we've seen Danny green just slight regression offensively in terms of even some of the, I don't want to say movement, but he's, that's not his game. That's not his game. You know what I mean? So you know what you're getting from him, Seth Curry, we talked about, you know, and he could explode for a big game or two, but defensively that's going to be an issue for him. And now you're looking at guys like what, like you said, someone off the bench, You know, Chick Milton. Tyrese Maxey, can George Hill uh you know come through. He's not that I mean in in his prime maybe. He's not that type of player and and then you're done. That's kind of it. Furkan Korkmaz, come on now. Yeah, you really have an issue there and you're right. Like that's a lot of offensive responsibility put on two guys and really one and a half in terms of, you know, Ben Simmons saying, "Okay, I'm going to focus, get to the rim, put pressure on. We know he's want to go to the free throw line, so that takes away some of the being aggressive already." And that's another element of it. I think if nothing else scott brooks did show or, or rather a uh, re re rediscover you know the fact that ben simmons from the free throw line is something the hawks can play to avenge if they have to yeah
1: um you know that that is always that is always an option and yeah just limiting the offense if if you've got enough guys that you know if you throw out a kong Wu out there and he can commit six fouls on dwight howard and force mm-hmm. him to the line and not give him anything easy yeah, that, that chips away over the course of a series and gives them a little bit of a boost. But uh, yeah, the, the, you know, I think most of this conversation has, has uh, it, if anyone's listening, they, they probably think, oh, we've just given Philadelphia no chance. But I guess a couple of things that I would say are in their favor in this series. One would be, I think you've got to give the coaching edge to Doc Rivers over Nate McMillan, even though, McMillan made some nice adjustments, even though he made adjustments to stupid decisions initially. <laughs> but uh, he he made some nice adjustments in that Knicks series. But he's still I don't trust him as a playoff coach. I trust Doc. And then also, you know, Atlanta has a good bench on the offensive end, uh, but you know the guys that they consistently go to the Lou Williams, the Danilo Gallinari, Kevin Herter. Those would probably be uh, players six, seven, and eight in their rotation you know those guys are all offensive pieces whereas Philadelphia with with George Hill and Shake Milton and Dwight Howard and Corkumaz they've got guys that can give you reasonable two-way production so i like that a little bit more but as far as the starting lineups especially if Embiid is out or limited i give the hawks a big edge
0: yeah yeah i i don't think it's anything to even kind of fleshed out even further than that you're right and you're right the coaching matchup is going to be interesting I mean I have to go with Doc Rivers in this case only because I mean come on Name Millennius, notorious, notorious for his lack of adjustments. Although I think he did a decent, I mean, he didn't really have to do too many adjustments in the Knicks series. And we know that Coach Thibodeau, in the battle of who won't adjust, won that one because the, last, the adjustment he made at the very end was the death knell and starting Derrick Rose for as long as he did. Um and not giving up on Alfred Payton as early as he should have. So yeah, I the, mean the big
1: the big adjustment that uh that McMillan made that helped, and, and John Hollinger jokingly <laughs> pointed out after uh, they they lost game two. He Hollinger said something to the effect of, like, uh, the Hawks lost this because of the rule that you can't stagger your starters minutes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, referring, I think, in large part to, to Trey Young and, and Bogdan Bogdanovich, that in that, yep. season, they, they basically played together and they they put out the bench units without either of them. And as the series progressed, they staggered those guys. And I think that really helped the second unit.
0: Yeah. It kind of, it kind of buoyed them. Yeah. And if you look at rotations, like you mentioned about Doc, uh, you know, he was able to get away with some all bench lineups against the Wizards because they were just so hapless. They had no way of really reacting to anything that Philadelphia did. They were the aggressors, the entire series. And, you know, a lot of that was just the lack of what Philadelphia had, but you're not gonna be able to do that at all against the Hawks. For one, you know, you might have to have at least Ben Simmons or Tobias Harris on the floor at all times. Very rarely can you get, you know, uh, Shake Milton, who I didn't think had a good first round anyway, or or uh, Tyrese Maxey, who played a lot better, you know, in the last couple of games of the series, particularly four and five. But at the same time, I mean, he's he's the rook, he's the young guy, you know. So I I don't know how Doc is going to do this, but I think his rotations are another part of that, because you already have to deal with having Dwight probably start, um, and you already have that length and size of the Atlanta front court between Hunter, Capella, and Collins. So you, you have guys who can kind of mitigate Simmons from, you know, not being too crazy as a driver, and then if you look at that and the lack of depth that the Sixers have from a forward position behind Simmons and Harris, what do you do? All of a sudden, they remind me more of the Washington Wizards, ironically, who they beat, because you're kind of covering... Right now, while Embiid is gone, at least for a key position, that is, the I think forward is is kind of the X factor in this series. A lot of the Hawks' strength is from that forward position, and guys who can swing up there. And once you get past guys like Simmons or Harris, uh, who are we looking at? Korkmas to soak up minutes. You know, it's 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 a lack of that.
1: Yeah, um, uh, let's let's get into our our X factor discussion. And you mentioned the forwards, and yeah, I, I've I've got four guys. And two of them are the forwards for for each team. DeAndre Hunter, I think not only his defense on Harris is going to be critical, but his offense, especially if the Sixers try to hide Curry on him is going to be vital. Mm -hmm. So he's, he's a big player in this series and obviously just knocking down his three point shots is important, but uh, you know, Harris for the Sixers on the other end is going to be crucial, uh, you know, because he's there, he's their second option offensively. He's, you know, Overtasked being a second option on a mm-hmm. title contender, but he's got to produce and and he played really well, especially at the beginning of that that wizard series. So so he's gonna be big. The other two guys I've got listed here as my X Factors, Clint Capella. You know, if we see that's it, mine too. Yeah, if we see Embiid at full strength, and you know, this meniscus issue isn't too too big of a problem. Uh, you know, Capella is going to be instrumental in, in just limiting him some. You've got to keep you've got to make him just a little less efficient than his his normal normal numbers. And I think he's got the capability to do that. And then also as the lob threat, uh, he uh, and, and, and an occasional post up against mismatches, Capella is a, is a vital player and a key reason why this Hawks team is, has has uh, has made this run and is in the second round of the postseason. And the final guy is is Seth Curry. Again, because I think the Sixers, with a limited Embiid or Embiid out, they're going to need Harris and Curry to produce a ton of offense for them, as well as Simmons. But, um, you know, Curry had some some big games in that, uh, that first-round series against Washington, and uh, he's also going to be the guy on the defensive end that's going to have to – you know, is going to be targeted, and he's got to hold up reasonably well.
0: No, I'm with you. I'm with you. Those are all good. I was going to say I share uh, Capella. I share Hunter. um, I'm going to throw in Ben Simmons. You know, look back over Ben Simmons last five games. First, first game against the Wizards, you know, uh, six points on three and nine shooting, but 15 rebounds, 15 assists, then 22 points you know, nine and eight, 14, five and nine, 13, 12 and three. And then finally, you know, a sublime, you know, 19, 10, 11, you know, being a factor on all ends of the floor. And mind you, that was against a Wizards team that didn't have a suitable defensive uh, uh, counter for him. You know, you, you didn't have a, a lack, a whole, a whole lot of size for the Washington Wizards as, as a team in general. So now you're going against the Hawks. And I want to see the type of effort consistent for Simmons not only across all facets of the game but understand that offensively you need to take a bigger role that's one
1: yeah that's that's uh yeah I I think it's going to be it's going to be a bit shocking for the Sixers to just realize how big the Hawks are not because Mm -hmm. the Hawks are just like huge in general but you know when you're comparing them to the Wizards,
0: they're a night and day. Gigantic basketball team. <laughs> yes, sir. Night and day. No, you're right. It, it's it's <laughs> you went from the Lilliputs to just the, the, someone more your size. You know, you go you live among fifth graders, and now you in high school, and you see the fellow high schoolers like, oh wow, okay, interesting. And you know, I want to see if the mindset for Simmons. <laughs> I want to see if the mindset for Simmons is consistent. And, and commiserate for someone who is aware, okay, I need to be that guy. You know, it's it's Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid, and I need to pick up that responsibility and not defer as much, especially when there aren't many other options to defer to. Um, my last one is, is Tobias Harris as well. You know, we've seen Tobias Harris, you know, kind of be, of uh, a uh, leader of a strong core of teams you know notably with Los Angeles and and kind of be the guy but not be the guy he's really you know a second banana kind of masquerading as as a as a number one option um but in this case he's going to have to act the part a whole lot better you know just to be that one guy who can establish some offense continuity and be someone who can initiate a little bit who can shoot a little bit who can you know do some more creation do some off the bounce juice he's the only guy that's multifaceted on the offensive level from all three levels for the Philadelphia 76ers while Joel Embiid is out. And that's kind of scary for a championship contender, but like looking at it, he's the one guy who is not one dimensional in any, or or not one dimensional, but let's just say overly dependent on one phase of scoring. And in my mind, a lot of it's aggressiveness for him and he needs to be aggressive and really key the Sixers attack from the offensive end. And then my last one is Doc Rivers. Is going to be able to Doc not to, you know, do some, you know, he's been, he's had some follies in the past with the Clippers. We've seen some rotation issues and, and I don't want to say lack of adjustment or lack of change, but just horrible change and horrible adjustment. So what does Doc Rivers do um, against a coach that he really should have no problem um, at executing in Nate McMillan because Nate McMillan doesn't execute once the game starts?
1: Yeah. Doc is going to, is going to have to earn his money this series. I think in large part getting Harris and Simmons in spots that are advantageous for them to score the basket. Exactly. And, you know, utilizing some sets to take advantage of Trey young guarding Danny green at times. If you can get Danny green, some looks off of staggered screens off the ball that uh, that could be helpful or just, you know, run Trey young through so many actions that uh, he, he's tired on the other end. So yeah, that's going to be, that's going to be critical, but uh, Yeah, now that we've both mentioned about half the rosters for the (laughs) X-Factors,
0: let's uh, let's get to
1: my favorite question in in these series previews, and that is down 0-2 in the series adjustments. So, Corbin, you are acting as Atlanta. So, say uh, the Hawks get down 0-2 in this series, lose the two games in Philly. They're heading back home to Atlanta. What can Nate McMillan do, some sort of of out-of-the-back box thoughts and ideas to to change the momentum and get Atlanta back into the series.
0: So it's funny, my my joke I'd written this down was nothing. It's Nate Millen But <laughs> um, but honestly if, if 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 I'm looking at us being down um 2 in the series, I'm thinking that it's because offensively we're not going. Because I don't think defensively um we're gonna have too many issues against Philadelphia just in their current state. Um, so with that being said, I, I would maybe, and this might be a little crazy, but maybe bring Deandre, um, Hunter off the bench and, and, and maybe start with Tony snow, you know, bring in some, force some more issues in terms of, you have someone now that can, you can kind of hide in terms of, uh, a Seth Curry, but I think it's someone where you can bring in a, a guy in Hunter to maybe not only have as a defensive guy, but you're, 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 you're putting more offense on the floor, you're making more room for Trey Young to operate. Because in my mind, I'm looking, I'm sitting going, okay, if we're having an issue, if the Hawks are down 0-2 against the Sixers in the Sixers' current depleted state, why is that? I don't think it's because of lack of stopping the Philadelphia 76ers, because I'm not sure where the focus would be. Although my counter to that would, would maybe even be making having another wing thrown in the mix. Let's say, let's say it's Ben Simmons and... Um, Tobias Harris going off. Let, let's free. Let's uh. Let's let's free some guys off the deep end. Let's uh. <laughs> but let's like bring in Hunter to kind of wreak havoc off of rotations. Force Doc Rivers to make adjustments off the bench and maybe exploit more the weaker links of the Sixers as they're putting more offense on the board by exploiting them defensively with more offensive weapons. So it'd be more of a missing match with that. I mean, maybe even going and this might prove a little detrimental. But let's say you put out Trey Young, Bogdan, um you know, have Herter and then close with Capella and um, Gallinari and just commit to the commit to commit the offensive showdown.
1: Yeah. So I, I guess when you're saying bring Hunter off the bench, you're kind of assuming that he's not hitting shots and he's a- the reason they're not scoring. I, yeah.
0: Exactly. He's someone that you can hide, you know, uh, like let's say now is working the opposite effect. Now you are able to hide a Seth Curry or, you know, one of your weaker defenders, you know, on him. Let's say you want Ben um, Ben Simmons to be more of the free safety on defense, and you can hide him on Hunter because he's not being aggressive, his shot's not falling. Now you bring him in a spot where hopefully you can encourage him to kind of go off against second units. Philadelphia's second unit is admittedly weaker in that respect, and also you have more firepower with the offensive end. And it's not like you're not putting Hunter on an island by himself. He's still kind of coming in with Lou Williams and guys who can kind of at least, you know, carry the offensive load of Hunter's just stinking it up on the court.
1: Well, yeah, and that would give their, their second units a little bit more balance because, yeah, all of mm-hmm. their bench guys are all offensive guys, and so he, Hunter would he, give him a little bit of defense. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Um, so if I'm if I'm Philly and uh, I get down 0-2 in the series, losing the first two at home, I guess my my first assumption is that if we're down 0-2, that means that Embiid is either out or severely limited, and at that point, you know, if if – if I'm the Sixers organization and Embiid is not the guy anymore, I'm just sitting him. I'm not risking it. I'm not risking the next five years of Sixers basketball for this season. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the things that I would consider doing is I would consider, yeah, going, going really small and playing, uh, you know, basically five wings if you can. And switching any pick and roll action with Trey Young and Capella, or Trey Young and Collins, and convincing the Hawks' offense to be more of okay, we're just going to post up Collins and Capella on some slight mismatches, and you know take our chances with that, <laughs> and then, and hope that the small ball—if you can, you know—if you go small, maybe you can bring in another shooter, in the likes of a Cork Maz or a George Hill. And, you know, spruce up the offense a little bit as well with that. And then the only other thing uh, that, I, that I had listed here is, yeah, just attacking, uh, attacking Young relentlessly. If they're hiding him on green, you've got to try to do some stuff where you have green setting screens. And it would probably best suited to have Danny Green set the screen for Seth Curry. Ah, uh, shooter freeing a shooter as the guy that curry you can't you can't go under the screen against curry so that forces the the hawks into a little bit of a, an issue where either you're you're hedging out and green gets a pick and pop or you're not showing enough attention to curry and he gets an, an off the dribble look so those would be the the, the two biggest things if if I'm down 02 as doc rivers
0: okay i like wow yours is a lot more uh, technically sound than my own <laughs> i no, was like it's no, simple I, I went at it like it was 2k what are we doing here okay more offense
1: <laughs> well no i mean I, I i think it's it's fair to say okay if if the hawks are down 0-2 it's probably not because they're just getting killed defensively it's probably their offense has been shut down to a certain extent so no i i, I understand that what you were what you were going at there um so let's uh i, I guess we're, uh, I, the next thing I got in my notes is series prediction, but it, was there anything else about this matchup that intrigues you that you wanted to talk about before we we get to our picks?
0: I feel like so much hinges on 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 so many variables. You know, Embiid's health, uh, the Hawks' shots going down, going ice cold. You know, live by the jumper—that whole tried and 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 actually not very true kind of statement there. You know, there's so much there that can switch I could definitely see as being a series I changed my mind on even the fact that we had like you said 18 million x factors like there's so many guys who can like stand up and, and make a huge difference in the series and that makes it very compelling but also makes it so confusing so I'm intrigued just to be able to watch this and not really have an idea of what I mean at least with this with Embiid being out let me preface that by saying with Embiid being out not having idea what way the series will kind of turn you know, who's going to show up and and what's going to happen there. That's intriguing to me, you know, seeing how Trey Young responds, if the 76ers will be able to kind of corral him a little bit. But with that being said, I'm ready to go into predictions. Predictions. I'm just, um, this is a series that was interesting to me because it was like, wow. Okay, thinking about it, thinking about it. Okay, if this happens, this happens. But I, I really don't know. Like a lot of it really depends on Embiid. A whole team winning kind of goes on Embiid, you know, being... Eighty-five uh, percent of what he is. I don't think you can bring him in laboring, and and yes, you'll have some of the defensive presence that he brings, but you're not getting the offensive attack enough that you know maybe Capella could reasonably hold him, you know, pretty much at bay because Capella's already a very solid defender. You know, I think a lot of it is is up in the air, and that makes this uh, series so fun to to anticipate.
1: Yeah. So I should preface my prediction with the assumption that I, I'm assuming Embiid's going to miss at least a game or two upwards of three. And Mm -hmm. I'm also assuming that even when he comes back, he's going to only be about 75% of the Embiid that we saw this season. So Mm -hmm. based on that prerequisite, I'm picking Atlanta in six.
0: Okay. Okay. Wow. Wow. Atlanta in six. Now mind you, this is regardless. Regardless. You said you said because you don't think you're gonna have 100 of beat. So you just yeah, said Atlanta and six. Was, done.
1: Yeah, that pick was based on my assumption that Embiid's gonna miss a few games and be even when he returns be limited to a certain respect.
0: Wow. Okay. All right. All right. So I'm gonna go with. I wrote two down. I I didn't know you were going to just be bold and, and, and just stick with one. I thought, I expect you to do much of what I'm doing, so now I feel on the island, I feel seen. Um, <laughs> I, you know, I'm going to do the same thing, darn it. I'm going to say, yikes. Okay, so I had I had Hawks in six if Embiid was out. I had Sixers in six if Embiid could come back to at least 75% effectiveness because I just believe in Embiid that much. I'm going to take that. I'm gonna mix it up. I'm gonna say Sixers in seven. Okay, nice. I'm gonna say Sixers in seven. Little twist from you, um, especially I do it on the fly because you went out and and swung like a champ, and I was ready to take the the walk. Yeah,
1: like like I said, I'm I'm a little bit perplexed by everyone just completely overlooking this Hawks team, uh, especially given that yes, the Sixers are the the number one seed, but. I think they're probably the fifth or sixth best team in the NBA. You know, this isn't some juggernaut, and they're their mm-hmm. fifth or sixth best team in the NBA with their their clear best player uh, with a, with a huge question mark heading into this series. So, yeah, I I, uh, I certainly could see Philadelphia still winning it, but uh, yeah, I'm I'm going bold and picking Atlanta. So, yeah let's let's get on to uh, let's move on to the the other series. I think the series that. Uh, we're, we're both most excited about it, and I think the NBA world is excited about and that is the two seed Brooklyn Nets taking on the three seed Milwaukee Bucks I'm going to be acting as the Bucks and Mike Budenholzer Corbin will be the Nets and Steve Nash Brooklyn finishing the year at 48 and 24 first in offense 21st in defense fourth in net rating at positive 5.7 Milwaukee as the three seed, forty-six and twenty-six overall, seventh in offense, tenth in defense, and fifth in net rating at positive five point five, the Nets defeated the Celtics in five games. The Bucks swept the Heat in four, and uh, we've got a couple of injury issues for both sides. Dante Divincenzo, with a ligament issue, is out for the rest of the postseason. Uh, that's a big blow for Milwaukee, and then also on Brooklyn's side, Jeff Green could miss the start of the series. He has a strained plantar fascia, but uh, apparently he's been progressing well. But they have not officially uh, said he's going to play or uh, ruled him out yet for game. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I guess uh, first off, Corbin, what are what are your initial uh, what are your initial thoughts about this matchup?
0: I mean, come on, Garrett. We all figured this was like the marquee matchup. We were hoping for this from like game one of the opening rounds of, res- of these respective teams. Like what if wait till we get, you know, the bucks versus the nets. I think you have firepower, you know, you have, uh, what the last four MVPs on these rosters between, uh, Harden and, and, and Giannis, you know, KD Kyrie, you know, Chris Middleton playing out, you know, you got drew holiday who was just insane for the bucks against the heat, just as a playmaker, as a score, just in general, uh, each each bench has some interesting lineups. You have some injuries as well. You know the Brooklyn Nets, like you said, with Jeff Green. The Bucks, obviously, a little bit bigger with the injury to Dante Divincenzo for the rest of the postseason. Um, the coaches, you know, Mike Budenholzer, who's been you know much maligned in the past for some of his adjustments or lack thereof uh, during the postseason. Again, this seems to be a common theme. And and Steve Nash, who is a coaching rookie in this stage, and mind you, didn't have to flex a whole lot of chops against the Boston Celtics who, you know, were injury-ridden and and really offensively uh, deficient. And now you have a team in Milwaukee who the talent level is night and day. So I think you have a lot of interesting chess pieces here, uh, a lot of different ways the series could go, a lot of different individual offensive and defensive talents that can, you know, kind of win on their own. And it's going to be very fun to see how this all shakes out.
1: Absolutely. And, and uh, if the regular season matchups are any indication, we're, we're in for a fantastic series. The Bucks won two of the three matchups during the season. Uh, the The Nets won 125-123 on January 18th, and then the teams played a back-to-back in early May with Milwaukee winning 117-114 on May 2nd, and then the Bucks taking the uh, May Fourth game, one twenty-four to one eighteen. But you know, the the, the key thing to, to focus in on as far as those matchups is, I think for for all three, if I'm not mistaken, the Nets only had two of their their big three.
0: So yeah, James uh, Harden did not miss play either. Yeah. So so
1: that is uh, that's that's something where you can you can somewhat throw the uh, throw those games out the window. But at the same time, when you when when I watched those games, one of the key things to me was that you know the Nets really didn't have much of a, much of an answer for Giannis in any of the contests. They occasionally would throw DeAndre Jordan out there, but uh, Giannis was able to utilize his mobility and kind of uh, back him down and get him under the rim and. You know, guys like Kevin Durant and Jeff Green at, at times are just too small, <laughs> too slight. <laughs> so that's, that's the fascinating part about this is, you know, obviously the Nets have three guys that are, that, are, that are unguardable to various degrees, but they really do not match up well against the Greek freak.
0: No, not at all. And that's something I'm honestly a little bit concerned by um because you're right you you, i mean the blake griffins kind of started at the five here for brooklyn so far but coming aside from strategic flopping which is only going to really you know aggravate and momentarily you know uh discomfort Giannis more than anything it's not going to stop him and half the time because of blake griffin's uh just Total lack of lateral quickness. also decides to round him uh, for an easy finish. Yeah, uh, I, uh, I, huh? I think the
1: the best way to describe Blake Griffin as a defender is like, yes, taking charges is a is a good defensive skill to have, but if it's the only defense,
0: <laughs> it's not oh, great. No, it really isn't. And and yeah, it's, 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 it's not good. And I think that the Nets will, you know, kind of keep in line with how they did for part of their two game set in May where they'll start with that, but that's all that play Griffin offers. There's no room protection, nothing there. And I mean, you could look at guys like the Andre Jordan who was the first person who popped up when I thought about who could possibly stay physically in front of Giannis, but looking it up, um, Yeah, DeAndre Jordan, I mean, he played against uh, Giannis the last two times they played, but he hasn't played all this postseason. And apparently, um, I mean, he's only played a couple of minutes in general since those matchups back then. So you're going to take a guy who's been sitting for, you know, the entire time and someone who's only played five minutes since May 4th and say, okay, now you get to go off the bench. Congratulations. Take all those mothballs. You're guarding Giannis? No, I don't think that happens. And if you're looking at that, Jordan is probably the only one from a physical standpoint who can do that. Blake is going to be what Blake is. And then that leads you to, uh, in my mind, the only other option. I mean, I guess you could say Durant, but I don't think the Nets are, are, are terribly uh, excited to kind of have him guarding Giannis for stretches. I, I think the guy you think about is Nick Claxton.
1: Yeah, it's it's fascinating because, yes, the obviously Steve Steve Nash has preferred defensively to to switch and to have centers that uh, that can execute that scheme, which is why Jordan has not played. But, you know, you can get away with that when the opposition has Tristan Thompson and Robert Williams, guys that aren't just going to destroy smaller defenders like Giannis will. So it is a fascinating give or take. Do you play some DeAndre Jordan in this series to deal with Giannis? When, yeah, it probably hurts the rest of your defense because then Milwaukee can can sort of get into their pick and roll game and attack the 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 traditional drop back scheme. Uh, and, and also Jordan, you know, I think hurts that hurts their spacing to a certain extent on the. On the offensive end, it allows Brooke Lopez and his best defensive skill, protecting the rim. It allows Lopez then to to be much more effective. So that is a that is a fascinating issue. And and Jeff Green's health, I mentioned at the outset. Uh, he, I think he's you know going to be a game time decision for that game one. But he's another guy that uh, out of the options that they have on the roster, he's probably one of the better
0: ones. So his health is going to be is going to be crucial. Jeff Green is the one guy who I, I do think you're right. It's going to be a, a big swing piece, and a lot of that again is on his health and also what he looks like when he comes back. You know what I mean? Is he going to be completely 100 healthy? Is he going to be lingering with some with some effects? Because if 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 he is, then you still have you know somewhat of an issue there. Jeff Green, even at 100, is in a total panacea for what you know is going to ail the Nets when it comes to defending Giannis Antetokounmpo. At the same time, I wonder if by putting a Nick Claxton or let's say a lesser defender, not named Blake Griffin, on Giannis, if that kind of psychs the Bucs into focusing on that matchup, you know, into this this mismatch that takes the Bucks out of their overall game plan. You know, you focus on, on so much of, oh, we have the advantage on this, that it turns out not to be an advantage if it changes the entire way your team is schemed now.
1: Yeah, you mean like just get, having the Bucks go back to what we saw in the last couple postseasons where they're just isolating Giannis a bunch?
0: Exactly. But in this case, obviously, the difference being that, you know, in years past it was just kind of flawed short side offensive philosophy where in this one it's like, no, you know, the Bucks truly feel that they have the advantage here. But by going back to that kind of plan that led to, you know, short exits before, you're going away from what got you as effective as you've been this season on the offensive level.
1: Yeah, and – and that that is a great point, and and that will be crucial for Milwaukee to avoid that sort of trap of of going into just pure isolation at the start of the shot clock with Giannis attacking from the three point line. I think it's it's been so big that they've you know the Holiday acquisition has allowed them to have multiple ball handlers uh, with Giannis as the screener attacking the defense, and with the Nets switching. You know, even if you've got an initial mismatch with Giannis, if you think, oh, the guy that's guarding him right off the bat is is a great matchup for us. Well, what if you get an even better matchup and instead of Giannis attacking from the three point line, you've set a pick, you've run a pick and roll and now he's attacking an even better mismatch, say instead of attacking Jeff Green, he's attacking Kyrie Irving from the free throw line. Mm-hmm. That is a much better outcome for the Bucks. So I agree with you that, uh, yeah, per- perhaps that could be, there could be some, some mind games being played by Nash where, yeah, maybe we'll just give Giannis such an easy matchup to start that they won't do what worked so well in that series against Miami and has worked so well all season long.
0: Exactly. And, 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 and to the Nets credit, they have to hope that that is the case because um offensively, I mean, not only do you not have an ideal matchup for them, I mean, Nick Claxton gives up a, a ton of weight, you know, and he's still just very raw and young as a player that you're going to say, okay, I want him to, you know, I want a guy who's played, you know, less than 800 minutes across two NBA seasons to match up against you know a two-time MVP in in what's going to be largely a one-on-one matchup it's 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 kind of whack to me um looking at the defense for the Nets though I think it's even more frustrating there because while the Nets switching can be you know reasonably effective and and let's say you know they have James Harden on Giannis or KD on Giannis or even for like the smallest of seconds Kyrie on him I don't think the Nets are equipped as a defense to they can handle the first let's say option or first attack or, or first wave uh from the Bucks. but let's say you know as it goes deeper in the shot clock and more switches happen now there's more breakdowns I don't think the Nets are cohesive or disciplined enough as a team to kind of withstand okay one switch two okay three pick and roll it's a lot and i think that you have too many weaknesses you're relying on blake griffin to cover the back end (laughs) you're relying on defensive awareness off ball from guys who historically you know aren't super strong there you're putting a lot on kd to kind of be the real actual uh backside or rim protector it's a lot there that i think could lead to breakdowns for the brooklyn nets
1: yeah it's uh it's it's tough because yeah you it's there's a give or take right the uh, with all of their centers being flawed in certain respects. Like I think Blake Griffin might be their best offensive center, given his nice. ability to space the floor and pass the basketball and, you know, showing some uh, vertical athleticism, despite the lack of lateral athleticism, lateral mobility and, and, and the like. But, uh, you know, and then, yeah, Nick Claxton is probably their best defensive center. And DeAndre Jordan is kind of the, the guy in between the two of those. Exactly. So, yeah, which one does Nash go to? Which one is effective? But, yeah, if you if you play Claxton or Jordan again, that allows Brooke Lopez, I think, to feel comfortable and at home in this series and to have an impact, whereas if he's matching up against just Blake Griffin or Jeff Green at the five or Bruce Proud, you know, then you can you can see as as Milwaukee, somebody
0: like Lopez getting potentially run off the floor. Yeah. And that's going to be an issue, too, because, you know, the Bucs with Lopez are committed to just straight block drop. You know, Lopez the entire time in that first round just kind of parked himself, you know, almost on the baseline. And that's what it was going to be. And now you're going to have a situation where, yeah, if you force him to kind of go in, in, in space where open space where he's not, you know, as well equipped. Yeah. Now all of a sudden you have one of your biggest strengths from Milwaukee turns into one of your, your, your bigger weaknesses.
1: Yeah. So let's get into the the pick and roll coverage. So as, as Milwaukee, I think the benefit of having the likes of Giannis and Drew holiday and Chris Middleton is you can switch basically with any of those guys, even Pat Connaughton who stepped in and started after the, the DiVincenzo injury, he started game Four that series. I, I, would assume he'll continue to start um, but you can switch with all four of those guys. And then, yeah, with Lopez, you can drop uh, as you know, he's, he most likes to do, but you know, if the nets are absolutely killing Lopez either by going small or their guards like Irving or Harden or Durant are just destroying that, to, that Lopez dropped, then yeah, the 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 benefit of what Milwaukee has this year is they've got PJ Tucker they can throw in there, and then they can switch one through five. Uh, they've got uh, even Bobby Portis; he's not a strong defensive guy, but you know he he can move his feet a little bit and and can reasonably hold up at times on switches. So that's that's going to be fascinating as well. And then also the the rebounding battle in this series i think is is something that milwaukee if they're going to win it they've got to feel like they dominated on the boards and just were the tougher basketball team of the two
0: and i think that that would extend itself now too because even you know the only one absent for the nets is jeff green you know you're kind of asking the nets kind of a gang a gang mentality on the boards you know in terms of strength and numbers for guys that like you said, the, the Bucks have kind of proven over the season and even against the Nets, you know, even with the absence of Harden, that they are the tougher team on the boards. My one question for the Bucs, my one worry about them, is that by putting bringing in P.J. Tucker, you definitely augment your defensive ability, but you definitely also kind of shorten that offensive um, side in terms of a threat to the Nets because on the Nets side, you have guys, I mean, yeah, you're better equipped to attack. Um, you're better equipped to handle... Uh, Kyrie, KD, that sort of thing on one end. But on the other hand, you're kind of giving the Nets a break because you're really focusing on Giannis, Chris Middleton, Drew Holiday, and two guys who not only aren't just lights out, knockdown three-point shooters, definitely able to be in Brook Lopez and P.J. Tucker, but they're also not someone that's really a threat to put the ball on the floor and make things happen.
1: Right. And, and yeah, with the Nets being so switch-heavy, it's going to be a lot of, okay, you know, how... How effective are the Nets at helping off of those, you know, not non-shooters, but the, you know, average shooters that the Bucks yeah. throw out there? Um, and, and also just like, you know, are the guys that are, that are defending the average shooters, are they even good enough to make a difference if they're in the right position help-wise? You know, they've got some limited defenders on this roster in the likes of Irving and Joe Harris and Landry Schammett. Uh, Blake Griffin, obviously. So that's the other issue is, you know, you've got really in that starting lineup, you've got Kevin Durant as the only guy that I would say, oh, he's, he's a guy that really can make an impact defensively. So, you know, but the Bucs might force him to be on the guys that are the good shooters are the guys that you don't want to leave. Um, so, so yeah, that's, that's going to be, that's going to be fascinating. The, The Nets certainly showed in the Celtics series at times that their switching defense was, was pretty effective, but at other times they seemed just way too casual in terms of, um, just conceding the switch that the opposition wanted. The Celtics wanted some mismatches with Jason Tatum and the Nets just gave it to them. Uh, so that, and, and if you do that in this series against Milwaukee, against the likes of holiday and Middleton and, and Giannis, they've got more than just one guy that is uh, able to take advantage of that.
0: That's true. There's, there's, there's more, there's more, um, holes that can be attacked on that way. And I think, I mean, I don't know about you, but I, what did you feel kind of transitioning that x Facts, what did you feel about that? Because I want to, kind of talk about that for a second here but for me I guess this is a, a tactical adjustment as well how much do you think the Bucks can compensate for the loss of Dante DiVincenzo who really kind of factors key here because you know when you have these Kyrie KD types well really mostly Kyrie and Harden uh, another guy aside from Drew Holiday who would stick them and not only kind of guard them would also be the secondary guy you know going around picks and such would be DiVincenzo now you take him gone that's a loss you bring guys like Pat Connaughton and Bryn Forbes who who I mean you have their strengths. Brent Forbes maybe a little bit more from an offensive level of than Content, although content can more or less be more passable on the defensive end, but they also have their weaknesses. Pat content not being the strongest of shooters, even though he's, you know, uh he's a solid shooter. He's more like in that PJ Tucker, um, you know, Brook Lopez kind of camp of shooting, a little bit less than that in my opinion. And then Brent Forbes, who defensively is just almost a non-entity. Well,
1: Connaughton can at least hit an above-the-break three, which P.J. Tucker cannot. Oh,
0: <laughs> there you go. That is very true. That is very true. You know but, what's funny? Real quick on P.J. Tucker, his last couple of games in Houston, he did some things. He hit, like, one or two, but he also had, like, finished. I remember watching this. Kind of went, you waited, like, four years to show this? He had, like, the ball in the corner. He pump-faked it, took it to the rim and, like, reverse layup. That didn't look, like, great, but he did it. Like, on back-to-back possessions on one game, and I remember going, where was this before? And I don't know if he was doing it just like, why not? Or, or it was, it, it just felt weird that in all these Tucker, if he didn't have the, the, the corner three, you know, he's passing it back around or, or that was it. And to see him do that was shocking. And I haven't seen it sense, but anyway, going back. Well, to If, that, if we're
1: going to go on a tangent of PJ Tucker, breaking down the defense, I, I've got to bring up, you know, I, I picked the Oklahoma city thunder to win in seven games against the Rockets in the first round last year. And I was, Oh, so close. And the difference was a PJ Tucker drive from the corner and like a 10 foot floater that he hit in the closing moments of game. Wow. Stephens, had that one had to period. sting.
0: <laughs> but that uh, had to sting. Yes, sir. I'm sorry. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but uh, no, that uh, Tucker is an interesting case. And yeah, him being able to knock down some shots and, and make an occasional play if necessary will be Will be big for for the Bucks, but yeah, I I think they they're right in starting Connaughton because unlike Bryn Forbes, I think he holds up defensively, and that's what they want out of that position as a guy that can hit a spot up three and can you know maintain their strong defense in that starting unit. And uh, you know Bryn Forbes he Forbes is one of my X factors in this series because he's going to come off the likely going to come off the bench. And he's going to have to hit shots like he did against the heat. And then also I think another reason why you probably want to start or bring Forbes off the bench is hopefully when he's playing the, the nets are not having all three of their stars on the floor at once. It's just one or two Mm
0: -hmm.
1: so that he, it's easier to hide him on somebody else. Whereas when, when the nets have all three of their big three out there and Joe Harris uh, it's it's really it would be impossible to hide a guy like Brent Forbes.
0: That's true. It just mints me out there for sure. For sure. Um My own X factor, I have, um, well, Joe Harris. I mean, come on now. You have the stars. I mean, this isn't really it's obvious X factor in this case. But when you have guys, you know, like KD Kyrie and James Harden around and you have guys, you know, like Giannis, Chris Middleton, and, and Drew Holiday, it's the guys between the margins that I think will make the difference. And Joe, and Joe Harris, the one guy, you know, who can play reliably uh, solid defense. The one guy who went a 3 point shot, it's on, it's on. We saw that this past series against Boston, you know, hitting, I think it was six out of eight at one point or something to that effect. Um, really being a release valve for those guys um, and also being able to not be played off the floor. And how does that work out? Uh, similarly, I, I would say that for the um, Nets, I would say uh, Bruce Bowen, you know, coming in playing kind of that small ball five role. How is he going to be able to match up? Um, Bruce and, Brown. Bruce uh, Brown, Oh my call. gosh. Bruce I Bowen. met Bruce Brown. Thank you for that, Garrett. It kills me, man. Another aside for, I don't know how many years Bruce Brown from with the Pistons. I've been saying Bruce Bowen and I know it's not Bruce Bowen, but it's just, my brain goes lazy. I'm like, yeah, Bruce Bowen. Like, come on Corbin. Jeez. Anyway. Well, I mean, if, if, if it makes you feel any better, they are similar,
1: similar players, the, the defensive sort of, uh, The guys out there
0: with limited jump shots. See, this is why you're a stand-up guy, Garrett. You totally covered for me there. I feel even better for that, Gaff. Thank you for that, sir. (laughs) But also, one guy I'm interested in is Landry Shaman. You know? gets a lot of minutes. Again, you want to have other guys step up for Brooklyn. I think it's going to be a test. This is the hardest test Brooklyn's probably going to face in the postseason. I don't think I'm being very bold in saying that. Um, I don't feel very confident they're going to be taxed too much in the next round, you know, provided they make it there. I guess that'll lead to predictions in a minute. But with that being the case, who's going to come up and make plays? And um, we're not talking about the big three. We're talking about guys who can feed off of that, guys who are able to slot in rolls and make shots. And Landry Shammett, you know, and he's played solid, you know, both with the Clippers last year and with the Nets three parts of the year, he looks really good. And he also has times where he fades away and just is an identity. Um, I was going to say Mike James. I like Mike James. But, I mean, Nash has been really weird with his minutes. You know, he barely played in most of that series, and I was surprised. So I'm just not going to bring my Facts because It might not even be a factor, period.
1: You know me, Corbin. Give me all the Landry Landry stock there is. I uh,
0: oh, you'll you'll grab it up. You flock to Landry Shamet like I do to Anthony Edwards or <laughs> Russell Westbrook. So,
1: <laughs> but uh, yeah, the um, the the other couple of guys I wanted to mention for X factors was the the two po- possible alternatives for the Bucks at center. That's Bobby Portis and PJ Tucker. Given that there is a possibility, especially against certain lineups, where Brooke Lopez just can't function on the mm-hmm. defensive end. So I think both of those guys are going to have their moments in this series where they've got to come come through for the Bucs to pull it out. And then, yeah, we, we mentioned him at the outset, but Jeff Green, not only because of the question marks with his injury, but uh, they're going to need at least some level of resistance against Giannis. I think the, the, the Nets can still win this series with Giannis putting up monster numbers. But just, you know, just a small amount of resistance could could make the difference between winning and losing.
0: Yeah, it's going to be interesting to kind of see how that goes, because you said it. it's both these things are interesting, taking this Brooklyn series and also kind of going back to Atlanta series where you have these big themes. But so much of it is decided in these really small between the line elements um, that are curious for me. I like your X-Facts a lot more than mine, but I mean, you could have put I could have drew, drew Tyler Johnson No. I couldn't have, but I could have gone in terms of, you know, these Brooklyn Nets guys because so much of them is on so much of that team is the identity of their big three. I guess you can even make James Harden the X Factor, simply because we haven't seen James Harden match up against this iteration of the Bucks with this team. But at the same time, if any team has the ability to kind of hold James Harden in check for as important as James Harden is for the Nets, I think he is clearly, I think we'd agree, their most important player in terms of being the hub between the stars and the bench guys and making it all Flow in a, in a in a um I'm trying to say continuity, continuity. Whatever. Anyway, making it flow in a homogenous way. I'll go lazy there. <laughs> go if any team can limit James Harden, I mean, if you look at it, Milwaukee set the blueprint for that a couple of years back you know, forcing him a certain way, playing him in the traffic, forcing him to lob threats. You know, at the time, we're going to make you make your mid-range shots. going to make you make your floater. He had to learn, like, match that floater. He had one, but he had to take that and make it his arsenal. And if you're going hard and saying, okay, we're going to force you to do that, how much does that take away from what Kyrie does? You know, do you want to make Kyrie a playmaker, which is something that he obviously is freed of the burden of having to do because now he can just focus on his offense and focus on shooting. But if you force him into that, what does that do? I mean, this, this Brooklyn Nets team, again, as talented as they are, not a whole lot of sample size on how they all play together. And if you can make one player overly uncomfortable or go back to their own bad habits or, or, or more personal um, ISO habits, maybe that's just the shift that's needed to kind of take the entire ship off its course. If you're Brooklyn.
1: Yeah. I'm, I'm so glad you brought up the whole idea of the, the bucks defensive scheme dealing with Harden in years past. And the big difference with Harden's game against that defense is the floater. You mentioned it but this year he's shooting 48% from the short mid range, which is a career high for him. So he has really started to master that floater and make it so that that defensive system where you're going over the screen, the the big is dropping back all the way to the rim. uh, He's, he's punished that more this year than he ever has. So that's, uh, that's something to keep in mind. And, and, yeah, the, uh, th- this series is going to be absolutely fascinating. So let's get to the last question before we do our predictions, which is the down 0-2 in the series adjustments. And uh, as as the Brooklyn Nets, if, Corbin, if somehow the Nets fall down 0-2, losing the first two at home uh, in front of their, their mediocre fan base. Uh, <laughs> Half of them are posers. I'm done. <laughs> but uh, – if that happens, what are some things uh, that uh, that Steve Nash might have up his sleeve to, to turn things around?
0: So, I mean, honestly, you're not moving KD Kyrie or, or James. That's not happening. So my first thought was moving Blake Griffin, um, whether that's for DeAndre Jordan, whether that's for Nick Claxton. I think you have to look at how um, you feel about their performances over the last two games. But you have to realize something is a change. And in my mind, if there's an issue, it is with Blake Griffin because he's already kind of the weakest link. In my opinion, have a super great series last against Boston. It was just Boston was so bad that it was okay. But he wasn't like super great there. Um, and if he is being attacked, and he can be attacked by a Bucks team that knows kind of just how to go at weaknesses, then you have to take him off the floor, even if that's putting on DeAndre um, Jordan in that kind of uh, Keith Bogans role. You know, only playing the first couple of minutes, just shaking it up and and, and making it different that way. Um, another thought that I had, I'm not sure how I feel about it, but if we're looking for more defense. Maybe we take out Joe Harris and bring in Brown early. You know, maybe you have, you know, having Brown at the four, small ball four, five, you know, kind of focusing on, let's say, if it's Chris Mills, that guard matchup, freeing KD to kind of be more of that rim presence and also freeing from having to focus on one guy because all the Nets are going to have to defend somebody in this series. You aren't going to be able to hide, especially, like you said, with the switching scheme that the Nets uh, utilize. You're not going to be able to hide them too often on a Pat content for long stretches or on a, a Brooke Lopez. And especially with the way Brooke Lopez was posting up, you know, last year, he like, oh, I could just go back to, you know, um, Brooklyn Nets, Brooke Lopez. You know what I mean? So with that being the case, maybe you say, OK, we're going to bring some more defense in off the bench. You know, let our offense do what it does already. And you know, how are we gonna stagger KD, you know, James and Kyrie, but then we also have guys that come off the bench that could be shooters. Now you bring in Joe Harris against a weaker defensive lineup for the Bucks is gonna utilize, you know, Bryn Forbes and utilize um I'm forgetting his name now. Um aye. aye, aye. Thank you. I was about to say crazy eyes, Garrett. <laughs> Late. I'm that's
1: tired. That's some wide eyes. Yeah. There you uh, go. I, I would counter then if you make that counter, I would counter with starting Bryn Forbes to match up on Bruce Brown.
0: <laughs> you're, you're right because then you can hide him. That is true, and and thus the chess match begins. <laughs> because, <laughs> because you're right. But I feel like if Brooklyn is losing those two games, it's not going to be for lack of offense. You know, and I think that's I think we both realize that. So how can you you know? deploy more defensive players or, or more defensive identity around your 3 core guys when you know that benching any of them is a non-starter and I'm not saying it should be I'm just saying three of those guys cannot be moved so <laughs> your only change would be on focusing on the other two you know and that's kind of the key lineup change that has to happen down though 2 because at this point right now maybe you make Giannis into more of a shooter you know it, it, other elements of this are more like I don't want to say intangible changes but like do you focus on taking one of the Bucks big three entirely out of the picture? And I don't think the Nets have the personnel or defensive identity to even begin to say, okay, we're gonna to totally deny you. They don't, they're not that kind of team.
1: Yeah. The
0: the interesting thing
1: for me is yes, I understand the, the idea that yeah, the Nets are brilliant offensively. So if they're down 0-2, they probably haven't gotten stops. But I also think there's a, a, a legitimate possibility that. Steve Nash is kind of in the same mindset as like a Ty Lu, where instead of adjusting to even though the Clippers got down 0-2 because they just couldn't get stops, he still kind of made more offensive moves. Uh, I I I wouldn't be surprised to see Nash kind of go in that same vein where he says, OK, yeah. We haven't gotten stopped, so let's just juice our offense up even a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Just throw them
0: out the water. You say uh, "Katie at the five, huh?
1: <laughs> yeah, just to be completely unstoppable.
0: Yeah, no, you're right. And, and and honestly, I mean, that's not beyond Nash. I mean, I'm not saying that Nash is like a Mike D'Antonio all offense, no defense, but you're right. He's going to lean to his strengths, and that'd be fun. Just for a minute, bring in Katie to the five you know, slide Joe Harris up or or slide James Harden up and kind of see what happens. James Harden is, I mean, much is made about his post-defense.
1: I feel like we're going to see James Harden guarding
0: Giannis at times in this series as well. Yeah, I I, I would agree with you on that. And he can do a decent enough job. I just don't know if you want to have that too often, especially since James Harden kind of runs the offense for, you know, the Nets. And yes, Kyrie and KD can. But when KD and KD are there, they're mostly creating offense for themselves. They're able to do it for others, but James Harden does it, you know. And that's kind of where they're at right now. And you're right; it's those shifts like that. Same reason why I wouldn't put KD on Giannis until crunch time. Because yes, you can do that, but then again, you're taking away some from from him there, and also you're kind of mitigating the help side defense that you would have because you're not going to leave Giannis at least not around the rim. Yeah. Lord knows down the dunker spot.
1: Yeah, I think like Jeff Green and Harden are probably number one and number two on the Nets roster in terms of uh, best matchups for Giannis, just in terms of having the strength and being able to, I mean, more so Green being able to move his feet than Harden, but yeah, just not being bullied. I think those two guys are their best bet. I like Harden, uh, you know, more than I like Durant on Giannis, for
0: instance, because I think Durant just will get All over yeah you're right frame wise you know stout enough kind of having good read for you know picking up the dribble and yeah Harden is a good post defender um I don't make it seem like he's some like you know just take you out of your element guy but he's someone that you're right you feel a lot more comfortable with just from a physical standpoint alone than a a Durant who you'd rather have kind of flying for the weak side you know doing the the blocks that he does or he's wanted to do over the last couple of years
1: right yeah exactly not only does putting Harden on on Giannis make it uh, the better matchup on Giannis, but yeah, then you've got Durant as the weak side help defender who he's obviously much better at that than Harden is. Exactly. So as far as the as far as the Bucks with uh, it, you know if the, if Milwaukee gets down 0-2 and I'm Mike Budenholzer. Uh, you know, depending on how the Nets scored in the first couple of games, if it was just the the big three putting up like combining for 100 points or, you know, it's the the other guys say Joe Harris hit eight threes or something. It, you know, I, I think I would try to mix it up and make the stars beat me one game, make the role players beat me the next, you know, and and and, um, you know, you, the, the last thing you want is to give them everything. The last thing you want is to have. Irving Durant and Harden all go for 25 and you're giving open shots to their role players. You got to try to take something out of the the picture there. And then the other thing would be, uh, you know, I I, I briefly mentioned this with the X factors, but play Lopez less. I'm assuming if you're down 0-2, the defense has not been able to get stops. They've been able to take advantage of Lopez in that drop. So playing him less, getting in those more switchable bigs, I think would be, would be something to do. And then the final thing on, on the offensive end is to just spam the pick and roll with whoever Kyrie Irving or Joe Harris is guarding Oh, that's you know, a and, and, and just attack that and, and get favorable switches onto Giannis and, uh, and, you know, if they, if they aren't switching with, with Irving or Harris, then you're getting to attack traditional, uh, defensive coverages, which I think Middleton and, and holiday can, can take advantage of. So those would be, those would be my big adjustments, but, but yeah, I think this is just going to be, before we get into our picks, is there, is there anything else about this series you wanted
0: to discuss? I, I, I cannot wait for this matchup. This is probably a whole lot of fun, man. It's probably a whole lot of fun. I think I'm curious as to how adjustments are made. I mean, you, Bob, some really, really good ones. Um, especially that point. You don't want to just attack on the pick and roll. Cause that makes a lot of sense. You know, the bucks don't have as many weak links. Um, I guess you could, you know, possibly go at Connaughton or Forbes if, you know, the luxury presents itself um, or, you know, get Brooke Lopez in space. But aside from that, you are going to have KD, I mean, Kyrie and you're going to have Joe Harris available most times to go at. And that's that's a really, yeah, playoff style adjustment. But for me, I guess what I'm looking at between these two teams are really their coaches. You know, I don't really know enough about Steve Nash in the postseason. He wasn't really tested last series. And what we do know about Boone so far isn't very good. But, you know, with the team having a new philosophy, must have been made of how they've attacked this year from a tactical standpoint. How does that bring itself to bear against a team that is actually a worthy opponent? Miami was a worthy opponent. Let me not describe Miami like that. But the point being, I felt Milwaukee was just better than Miami, period. Um, And now you are facing a team where Milwaukee is not better than Brooklyn period. And so now it comes down to the intangibles and now it comes down to the coaching. So, you know, the, the battle of the sideline, Um, who are you looking at between Nash and, and, Budenholzer? And I think, I don't think whoever makes the best adjustments will win. I think this series is going to be, you know, mostly determined by the guys and their performances on the floor, but a lot of it can also be helped by those making the adjustments behind the scenes, between games, et cetera.
1: All right. So I picked first for the last series. So I'll, uh, I'll let you go first on this one. Who do you got and in and how many games?
0: I went seven off the top regardless, but I flip flopped as to who each time. Um, I finally settled as of like six o'clock this evening on the Milwaukee Bucks. Okay, I think that if they can force the Nets to defend enough, the Nets' biggest Achilles' heel is on the defensive end. Offensively, this team is firepower. You're not going to win them in a straight up, you know, match shot for shot type deal. At least I don't think they're. Milwaukee's offense is good enough, but Brooklyn's is potent just just off the top. But if you can force them to make enough defensive errors, you can force them to play in a way they haven't been used to down the stretch. Take advantage of the fact that James Harden, KD, and Kyrie have only played an X amount of games together and then take away the amount of games where they've been actually tested down the stretch. You know, focus more on James Harden. You've kind of seen him in the postseason before. We know how that can get. You know, you know how Kyrie can get. Like, you have to make them make their own mistakes and the best way to do that is on the defensive end. So I think there will be enough times where... The Bucs will make the the um the the defensive stand that they have to at least enough. And the Nets won't be able to respond. I think that will come with a couple of just narrow, gnaw-your-nail victories for the Bucs, but I'm gonna say Bucks in seven. And I'm sweating as I say it.
1: I like that pick. I I was, you know, based on after the first couple of games of each team in the first round, I was leaning that way too, but uh, the DiVincenzo injury, I think, plays a big factor. Yeah. I don't think the the issue is as much, um, you know, the downgrade from him to to Connaughton or Forbes or whatever. But I also think that that just makes everybody play, uh, you know, an extra five, 10 minutes uh, and and. You know, you can get a little bit more of an intense run if you're selling Conaton You're you're only playing 15 minutes a night as opposed to 25. I think you can get better production in those 15 than you would with a longer spell. So I'm going to go Nets in seven. And okay. I think another, another part of it for me was that I, I was worried, you know, if it was Jeff Green was out for the series for the Nets, and DiVincenzo was out for the, was out for the Bucs. I'd probably go Bucs as well in that scenario, but mm-hmm. Jeff Green looks to be progressing, and while he might miss a game, it looks like he's going to be back at some point. I also, thinking about a Game 7-2 where it becomes a very physical, tough affair, I trust the shot-making of the Nets in a Game 7 in that defensive environment a little bit more. So uh, I'm going to go next yeah. in seven, but yeah, I, uh, I like you was kind of going back and forth as I thought about it.
0: Oh, it's tough. It's tough. And like you said, that game seven, that's a fair, that's a fair, you know, judgment given that because I think that the bucks will be able to serve in the type of slow down grind kind of game, but you're right. Manufacturing offense consistently, you have three of the best to ever do it. You know, at least as far as I know on the Brooklyn side, and you have some who can do it, you know, Milwaukee, but it's just not the quite same level. Uh, my last thought on this series is free Jeff Teague. I want to see how he plays. <laughs> I,
1: I think uh, the the more the more Jeff Teague plays, the less the chances are that the Bucks will win the series. So.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Probably right about that. Sadly.
1: <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, uh, Corbin, is there uh, is there anything you want to plug? I know you you've got a lot of other stuff you're you're doing. Is there anything you want to mention that you've been working on lately?
0: Honestly, man, I've been just catching up. It feels like with all the playoffs, um, <laughs> a span of the Spurs, I'm going to have something dropping hopefully this, um, weekend or kind of looking back on, um, the veterans for the Spurs who are, you know, free agents and how they fit with the Spurs this season and where they might possibly go. Very interesting when it comes to DeMar Derozan, Patty Mills, you know, Rudy Gay, people like that. Um, and then round ball Ramble, I'm actually, uh, you know, we're gonna probably do the same on uh just analyzing the playoffs. I might have to get you on board some of these again, Garrett. So uh Absolutely. and some offseason prev some offseason uh previews for some of these teams now because we have a, a nice little study list kind of building up. But um that's it, nothing that much, man. Just in join the playoffs and happy on here with you, man. You know it.
1: Yeah, watching watching the first round of the playoffs is almost a full-time job in
0: itself. But... Ooh, it's crazy, especially when NBA is so courteous to put three games on at the same time.
1: Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, Corbin, this was an absolute blast as always. Thanks. Uh, thanks so much for, for coming on and taking the time.
0: Thanks,
1: man. Thanks so much for listening to Duncan Dynasty. Please, if you can, if you have a moment, go to iTunes and uh, give us a rating and review, preferably five stars. And uh, if you could give any thoughts about what you like about the show, that would be much appreciated. We are also on Spotify, so uh, you can give us a rating on there as well. If you'd like to find some other content outside of this podcast, you can find me on Twitter, at Garrett Bougay. That's G-A-R-R-E-T-T-B-U-G-A-Y. I will be uh, tweeting various MBA uh, thoughts as well as some some thoughts on some other uh, interests of mine, including soccer and film and television, so uh, if you're looking for some of my takes throughout the, the course of the week, you can find me there. You can find my co-host, Corbin Ford, on Twitter at CorbinNBA. That's C-O-R-B-A-N-N-B-A. So uh, he, uh, he does, a, d- does a good job on Twitter as well. He's very active. I'm also doing uh, some work as a contributor for Rip City Project which uh, does all things Blazers so if you're looking for some written content you can check those websites out. Corbin also does his own pod on the side called NBA Today uh, he uh, he does some, some fun work over there so so please I encourage you to check that out but uh, thanks so much again for, for listening and have a great rest of your day